Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Bernie Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 24th episode of the Nauticast titled Brand the Broken, an analysis of a Game of Thrones brand four in which Bran Stark listens to scary stories, gets a saddle from Tyrion Lannister, and has a tender moment with his brother Rob. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., and Wolfman Zach. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Thank you, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all of our episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. And we are very excited to say that we have a guest on the show for this episode. A friend of the show, one of our patrons, you may know him from Baseball Twitter and Leftist Twitter and A Song of Ice and Fire Twitter, from his podcast, A Scene of Ice and Fire, uh, the Man Nuclear Bomb himself, Manu, welcome to the show, my friend. Hi, thank you guys. I'm very happy to be here with you guys. Yeah, man. Yeah, uh, I guess I should explain who I am and what I'm doing here. (laughs) Basically, as Emma kind of alluded to, I've just been a part of the Twitter fandom of Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire since... A little bit after the first season is when I really pivoted away from 100% baseball tweets to about 50-50 with Game of Thrones. (laughs) So mostly I just live on there and tweet about Game of Thrones all the time. Um, That's how I met Jeff maybe four or five years ago uh, back uh, when we were kind of new into the fandom. Um, and I yes. basically just shitpost a lot. Um, and then <laughs> within the last uh, three, four years, I've actually thought about getting into the content mill. So starting with season five, actually, one of my uh, friends approached me as like, hey, baseball season starting, Game of Thrones season starting. Do you want to do one of those BuzzFeed like listicles where each team is a Game of Thrones character? Yada, yada, yada. I did that. But it kind of turned some heads and um, it kind of made this guy be like, hey, if you just want to write Game of Thrones reviews for my baseball site, you know, go ahead. So kind of unfortunate it started with season five, you know, probably the lowest of the seasons, but (laughs) it's definitely a fun exercise and it's definitely a different way to interact with the show as opposed to just being a fan and just kind of consuming it and then tweeting about it. Actually having to write essentially a book report every week uh, kind of makes you approach the what's it called content a little differently. But other than that, I started a podcast with uh, my friend Andrew Mearns last year. A scene of ice and fire kind of like the sister podcast to you guys we were basically going through the show <laughs> one scene at a time just like you guys it's a little bit of a slow going a year and a half in we just got to uh baylor so season one episode nine so nice. um, we like the lo- level of granulity or granularity that you guys uh, also uh, partake in uh, we just kind of approach it more from the visual aspect and a little less from the text and storytelling aspect other kind of Game of Thrones claims to fame I have is that in December of 2015, I'm not a Reddit user because Reddit is the worst, <laughs> but... Um, well... Yeah, I'm just teasing. <laughs> I, I, I know your audience. But uh, a friend of mine found my uh, Facebook profile pic, which I had been interviewed by the CBS local news about a movie, and uh, my friend close captioned it with a fuck, Mary kill of Sansa, Marjorie, and Daenerys. <laughs> That kind of went viral on Reddit. Um, I was number one by the end of the night. I had friends and maybe some people who are not exactly my friends texting me about it, um, being like, hey, dude, you're number one on Reddit. So it was short-lived because I think Reddit has some kind of policy around Facebook content and stuff like that. But 
um, kind of that. And then lastly, last year, I added a beautiful baby boy to my family. Um, it is a cat Aww. named Gendry. So uh, <laughs> he's a wonderful little bastard, and it's kind of changed kind of changed my Twitter. So now I'm about a third cat photos to go with the third baseball in the third Game of Thrones. So um, <laughs> that's who I am. That's awesome, man. So so I, I have one. I only have one question. Sure. And that is, who was Stannis in your baseball ranking? Who was Stannis? Ooh. Um, I think at the time, so this is going into the 2015 season, he was the Chicago White Sox, and I have no idea why. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it was actually pretty fairly well argued, um, because I think the White Sox had just made a couple of moves that kind of put them on the, you know, on the radar again for a contender, and this was just as Stannis arrived at the wall in the show, so he had kind of, you know... (laughs) shrugged off the loss at Blackwater and has kind of reestablished a, you know, kind of a campaign to go forward with. So uh, that's kind of where I went. I'm a Chicago Cubs fan, and I uh, had Chicago Cubs as Daenerys. As I said, they had uh, three dragon eggs waiting to hatch, and that was the year they called up players like uh, Chris Bryant and Addison Russell and Kyle Schwarber. So um, that... uh, I don't know how much of your uh, audience listen or cares about baseball, but let's just say that was very prescient and apt of me to uh, make that comparison. So, yes, sir. Yeah, man. Well, we're super excited to have you on, and we were looking forward to having you on for a while. And we figured that this chapter in this episode would be just the perfect fit for reasons that will become more clear to you guys who are listening as we're going through the podcast. But, but yeah, we're like I said, we're excited. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. I consider you guys luminaries of the fandom, and I've looked up to your work for a long time. So, really appreciate the opportunity. You're, Amen, brother. You're too kind, buddy. You're one of the people I enjoy talking with on Twitter the most. So it's a delight to have you on the show where we do nothing but talk at each other. Perfect, perfect situation. Absolutely. So thanks for Manu for coming on, and thank you for everyone for listening. As we do in every episode these days, we have a number of questions from our patrons. Those who contribute $10 or more a month have the ability to ask us questions that we'll be forced to answer on our podcast episodes. We have a few questions this week. Our first question comes from Sir Josh the the Harangan? Harangan? The Harangan. I'm just going to go with Harangan Hero. He asks a two-part question. Here's the first part. Are you gentlemen inclined to support the Black or Red Dragon? And which claim do you think George prefers? I tend to think the Blackfire's most legitimate claim would would have been to take up Deanna's claim and her being passed over in favor of Viserys II. Manu, you want to answer the first part of the question? Uh, Do I? Uh, I'm not even really sure. Um, I'll admit to being one of those people who the Targaryen histories are the kind of lesser interesting parts of A Song of Ice and Fire to me. Um, I love them how they relate to the main A Song of Ice and Fire saga, but the family trees and the lineage and all the names that are a little too similar for me to keep straight, I don't have. So I am going to cop out and say whichever line that Jon and Daenerys are, that's my answer. um, Because I know who they are, uh, and I know pretty clearly who they are. So the devil I know, so to speak. So I'm going to leave it at that because that's all I got. The dragon I know. Totally that makes perfect sense. John and Danny would be the red dragon, so that that, that fits perfectly, because uh, as far as I'm concerned, the red dragon has it all over the black. i got to give a shout-out <laughs> to our friend uh, Patrick D., one of our Kingsguard patrons. I know he's a, a huge supporter of House Blackfire, probably the most uh, eloquent and forceful uh, backer that particular rebel house has on Twitter, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. 
But yeah, I go I go Red Dragon. I think there's a strong case to be made that Daron the Second, the uh, Targaryen monarch most associated with the Red Dragon side in that conflict, since he was king when it broke out, and it was kind of in the wake of his actions. I think there's a case to be made that he mishandled the Dornish question and wasn't really aware of the kind of the anger that came with uh, an entire generation of veterans that felt like they'd been stabbed in the back and that their sacrifice hadn't meant anything and that the atrocities, especially against the young dragon, were being overshadowed or swept under the rug, so to speak. I think there's a case to be made yeah. there that he handled that poorly. But if you look at what was actually motivating the Blackfire cause and the kind of realm they wanted to bring about, you know, when when Egan the Unworthy is like your shining role model and it's his actions that you're taking as legitimate and iconic, I think that kind of taints your yeah. movement somewhat, given that he's one of the two or three worst Targaryen kings. And uh, the Harangan hero brings up a, a good point that the Blackfire cause could have uh, made their foundation Damon's mom instead of Damon himself and made the case that she'd been passed over incorrectly. But this is the Blackfire cause, and one of their problems was the influence of women in Daron's courts. They were all about the more, much more martial, masculine aims and considered that to be the only true way of governing and the, the proper mm-hmm. model for the royal court. So, of course, they wouldn't make the foundation of their claim a woman's right to rule. Of course they would. Yeah. So I think that that demonstrates the weaknesses of the Blackfire cause right there. And even, even the the Blackfires and the the Dun- Duncan Egg stories, uh, Jeff, you brought up, that is kind of our con- emotional connection to this part of the story. Yes. You know, we seek a character like Damon the Second in Glendon Ball in the Mystery Night, and you get the sense from them that the Blackfire cause has kind of ruined their lives and destroyed their potential because they're just still trying to live up to the heroic image of what their dads were trying to do. But the actual Blackfire cause that we see in the Mystery Night is a bunch of sadists and torturers and assholes uh, Gorman Peak and Black Tom like you know terrible people and their deaths at the end if we're not cheering we're at least satisfied that they're gone because they seemed horrible like yeah. they were manipulating and or torturing these young men so I think the overall presentation we're given of the Black Dragon in the text is a cause that has some understandable grievances but their execution and their worldview is something I think we're supposed to flinch away from and and generally prefer the Red Dragon side even though they certainly have their shortcomings too. I agree and I mean there's certainly some romantic noble characters on the Black Dragon side. I think Damon Blackfire is a personally is a seems to be a noble heroic figure who took on a lot of personal courage and danger during the Blackfire rebellion to make it as nearly successful as it was. The, I'll I'll take the second part of the question which is which claim do you think George prefers? I would say that George prefers the Red Dragon claim, but I would also caveat that to say that George prefers a good story as opposed to backing a specific claim. That's why you can have in A Song of Ice and Fire, the main series, George writing sympathetic characters like Stannis or Daenerys or Robb Stark or even those freaking Greyjoys. Like these guys are, they have varying degrees of sympathy attached to them, but they also, he likes writing a good story more than anything else. So I think that's what he tends to prefer is something that'll build a lot of conflict in the story itself and will have ramifications down the road given that Aegon, a.k.a. Young Griff, is a Blackfire, and that will always be a question that I don't think that will be explicitly answered in A Song of Ice and Fire. I think it'll be something that will always be a question, especially in Danny's mind, of whether she killed her last living relative or not. And I think that's important for George as he crafts the conflict surrounding the story. And I think that's the same thing goes with 
whether he supports the black or the red dragon. He probably supports the red dragon, but he prefers a good story over all that. Yeah, I think what's important is getting the romantic notions out of it. You see that with someone like John Connington, who's probably attaching himself to the Blackfire cause, but thinks he's attaching himself to the red dragon cause. You see there, it doesn't really matter to George which side wins so much as kind of the emotions he can get out of putting the t- conflicting sides together. And I think he, I would say I would say he does a better job with the Blackfires out of that than he did with the, the Dance of the Dragons, where by the end I was like, these are all terrible people, which I know was the point. <laughs> But I don't, I don't really connect to anybody in that story uh, because of how just yeah. kind of brutal and, and detached everybody is. There's, I only connect to a couple of the secondary characters. The Blackfire Rebellion, I think, is more interesting that way, and I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays into the main series with Young Griff. The other part yes. of the Haringen Heroes question is, uh, I think Dark Sister might be in Lyanna's Crypt. I like to think that Blood Raven left it to Dana Lawston when he was exiled. I came to this conclusion because it appears she's either daughter or granddaughter of Egan the Unworthy. I think Blood Raven would have thought it important to leave it to someone in the Targaryen line, and he would have preferred to go to a magic user. And I think Blood Raven may have promised it to House Lawson to convince them to trade sides in the first Blackfire Rebellion. Coming back to Lyanna, I think when posing as the Mystery Knight, she found Daniel Lawson's armor, wore it, and uncovered Dark Sister. I think Rhaegar consented to her keeping the sword, slash granted it to her, which led to her falling for him. And I think this would have been his way of showing her that, that uh, their child was meant to be his heir. Keep up the good work on the show. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks. I think that's certainly interesting. I like the the logical chain there, especially Blood Raven using Targaryen artifacts to get people to trade sides in rebellions. That's a very Blood Raven-y kind of thing to do, especially when you look at his shenanigans with the egg and the Mystery Knight. That that, that fits his, his general MO. And I think there's definitely something in Lyanna's Crypt. I just don't think there's any conclusive information yet as to what it is going to be. There's going to be some kind of reveal involved in that, but whether it's a sword or a harp or dragon's eggs or like a birthing blanket or it's something, it's going to be something but yeah I, th- I think that's as likely as any other and i don't think as far as i g- can tell i don't think there's anything that supports one over any other i think we're supposed to at this point be going ah what's down there and then anything yes. that is is reasonably plausible yeah um I, I mean i've kind of always went with the assumption that Rhaegar's harp kind of is a very simple and neat answer which when i think of it that way makes me think it's not going to be that <laughs> if, if you've been following me on twitter you guys know i've been rereading um, a song of ice and fire for the first time in a while mm-hmm. and it really struck me reading the last chapter of a clash of kings where we have the revelation that brands a and his third eye opened while in the crypts and that just kind of got the processes going is what if whatever is down there related to liana and john isn't something that's actually a physical thing like if it's not a harbor <laughs> dragon shells but just you know john has a fever dream or there's just something else that happens down there that's maybe more metaphysical which might be more uh befitting considering what's happened to bran when he went down there his time of dire need or whatever so um, that's all I got. Yeah. But otherwise, in terms of the theory proposed here, I'm just like, sure. Um, it's just one of those things <laughs> where we we know something's going to be down there in some fashion, physical or not. I just don't think we have much evidence one way or another. But I do like this idea. And I think a lot of people are trying to find a place for Dark Sister to come up. And this, you know, is as yeah. good as any, really. So, yeah, I, I agree with it. And I think Radio Westeros had a great episode about Sansa Stark, of all people, or, or Littlefinger, of all people, in which they proposed the theory that Sansa Stark would use Dark Sister to behead Littlefinger, and that would be the end state of Lord Littlefinger in the books. We didn't come out in the show as we saw in season seven, but there are places where the, the end state's the same, but the way that George and David Benioff and Dan Weiss got to those endpoints are going to be different, and some of the plot points might be a little bit different too that get us to that end state. Um, I, the only thing I want to add is that George has said that he would love to write more about Danelle Lothston. 
So we could see, you know, the potential that this theory might pan out in a future Duncan Egg novella, which seems to be the logical place where George might write more of Donnell Lawson's storyline. So I think that's, it's interesting. It's a great theory. I encourage, as I say to some folks, I encourage you guys to write some of these theories up, even if it's kind of out there. Like this one is not necessarily out there. It's kind of in that nice in-between area where there's enough evidence and there's a question out there uh, in order for us, in order for uh, you guys as writers to kind of develop your thoughts a little bit and and develop a theory. I think it's really good that you can always try and do that. Mr. Josh, the Rangan hero, write up your theory if you get the chance. Write a Tumblr anywhere you want to, even Twitter, if you really want to do like a 30-part series on Twitter or something like that. I like this idea. I demand it immediately. And then our next question comes from one of our Lord's Commander, Wolfman Zack, who asks, since we won't get to them in the books for a bit, let's talk about the Brotherhood. Obviously, their fate is tied to Lady Stoneheart, and they cross paths with some of the best characters in the A Song of Ice and Fire universe. I see them as a twisted and doomed version of Robin Hood and his Merry Men, and unlikely to survive their experience with Stoneheart. Do you think they'll have any greater relevance to the plot, or will they end up just more as food for the Carrion Crows? Bonus question. Who is your favorite member of the Brotherhood Without Banners that isn't Beric or Thoros of Mir? Hmm. A good question. I I would say I'll answer the the last one, the bonus question, because I think it's the easiest one. My favorite character is uh, Thomas Evans and the Brotherhood of Banners because I think he's funny and I I love that moment where he's being confronted by um, is a lady Smallwood who talks about all the bastards that he has sown throughout the Riverlands and he's gets this really this like kind of reproachful look this kind of bashful like oh well you know they're not all mine this one doesn't have my nose and other things like that but everybody knows it's bullshit and that uh he's definitely fathered a bunch of bastards by winning his way into the beds of some of the young noble and common women in the riverlands due to his heart playing so i like thomas evans that's probably my favorite character besides barrack who is probably my favorite character of the Brotherhood of Banners. Yeah, it's kind of hard when you're kind of taking Beric and Thoros off the table because <laughs> they definitely are the more fleshed out of the two. I'm going to cap out, invoke my cat here, and say uh, Gendry, who is smithing for the Brotherhood of Without Banners by the end of A Feast for Crows. One of the regrets I have with the show, well, many of the regrets I have with the show is uh, <laughs> I really... For some reason, and maybe it's just because they're all white men, but I could see the physical similarities between the actors that played Robert, Renly, and Gendry. And I would have loved to have that scene from A Feast for Crows where Gendry's fully bearded and Brienne comes across him and is like, wait, is that Renly? Um, just because I could totally see Gen- uh, Joe Dempsey with that beard uh, pulling off that look. And that was kind of, that's just a moment that sticks out for me that's Brotherhood related and not tied to uh, Beric or Thoros. So part cat, part that's one of, you know, the better moments and chapters in A Feast for Crows because that leads right yes. into the attack by Biter and um, everything that goes from there. So no chance, no choice. But yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Gendry, final answer. It's Sir Gendry, though. Sir Gendry oh, Waters because he gets knighted in Feast. Yeah, Correct. so he becomes a knight. Uh, great choices both. I'm probably going to go with Harwin as my favorite member of the Brotherhood outside Beric and Thoros. I really uh, like him a lot. I like how he explains to Arya that, you know, he was genuinely loyal to her family and their cause, but he's he's found something greater. I think that's interesting because Thoros had already kind of given up on Relorism as something to believe in before he rode off with Beric, and Beric didn't seem to have anything he was particularly interested in besides tourneys. But uh, Harwin is going from this position of serving one particular house to... This, serving the people in general and fighting all the nobles who are inflicting harm on them. So I, I like his kind of growth and consciousness and his, the link to Winterfell he provides with Arya. And I like he's, you know, he tells her about 
Ned's victory at Stony Sept and, you know, tries to gently talk her talk to her about Ashara Dane. So I like I like that connection to Winterfell that he provides Arya. I think that's nice. As far as uh yeah, Zach's larger question about the fate of the Brotherhood, yeah, I think the ones with Stoneheart are largely screwed. I hope Thoros makes it out because I like <laughs> him a lot, and I think it's interesting that the show got him involved in the northern plot. I think that's entirely possible. I could see a couple of Stoneheart's crew, the nicer ones making it out. In the same way that, like, a few people from the Great Ranging made it out of Craster's Keep alive, like Dolores said, and Gren and a couple of nice ones made it home. I could see a similar situation being here, but I think the angrier ones, like Lem, I think are probably going down with Stoneheart. That seems to be kind of the tone of the direction the books are going with the Brotherhood. If I recall correctly, there were a few people who broke off, like... Uh, Edric Dane. Edric Dane. one of them, yeah. I don't, I don't get the sense that Gendry is with the Brotherhood when... Well, Gendry, Gendry is, but Harwin isn't, right? And it's like Harwin and Edric Dane are off doing their own thing. In Right, Harwin is off with Edric Dane. So that crew, I assume, will get roped back in at some point, maybe with Thoros and any other survivors from the Stoneheart camp. I, I could see some version of, of the show where they get involved in the northern plot. That's That seems to make sense, given that they're out to protect the people and the others are threatening everyone, and it makes sense that the largest group of Relorites in southern Westeros would eventually get involved in the plot against the ice that, that, that fits their religion. So I could definitely see them trending in that direction, but only after, yeah, everything kind of collapses in on itself with Stoneheart and the Riverlands, because I don't imagine that's going to end well for any of them. Yeah. One of the interesting things about the Brotherhood is how they've lost their purpose in A Feast for Crows, because when we hear about them in Clash, they're very much like the like what Wolfman Zack says. He's their Robin Hood and the Merry Men looking out for the small folk, whereas the Starks, much as we love them, are out for Stark interests. The Lannisters, as much as we dislike them, are out for Lannister interests in the Riverlands. But there's one group that's fighting on behalf of the small folk who are caught in the crosshairs of this, or rather caught in the crossfire between these two factions. In Feast, under the leadership of Stoneheart, they've taken a decided turn towards playing one side. Namely, they're playing against the Freys, the Lannisters, and the different factions that are allied with the Freys and the Lannisters in the Riverlands. So one of the proposed theories that I am a big fan of is that in the Winds of Winter prologue, which we know will have Jane Westerling in it, that we will see a potential brother without banners ambush of the Lannisters as they're exfiltrating from the Riverlands back to Casterly Rock and Lannisport. And I think that that is going to be a great spot for George to do some interesting things potentially, because I don't think it's just simply going to be the, the Brotherhood overwhelming the Lannisters or vice versa, the Lannisters overwhelming the Brotherhood. I like the theory by Adam Feldman that we've cited several times that we're going to see a magical element take form in this battle where you have the Lannisters fighting against the Brotherhood and then the wolves descend on both of them, which is a great way to kind of showcase the themes that we think the Winds of Winter is going to be based around, which is that everyone, all the all of mankind is fighting each other and killing each other. But there's a magical element that is descending on Westeros that is there to kill everyone, no matter where, whether you're wearing a Lannister lion or a Stark wolf, or if you don't have a banner altogether, if you're the Brotherhood without banners. So I think that's one place that we're going to see the Brotherhood. I, we can talk about this at significant length now, or we can save it for another time. But there's the proposed Red Wedding 2.0 theory, which has the Brotherhood infiltrating the wedding between Sir Davin Lannister and an unnamed Frey girl at River Run in The Winds of Winter. I think that's probably going to be something we're going to see. The question I have is, is that I think that Stoneheart will make it out of the Riverlands, and I think that she has to have some comeuppance 
for her behavior, and it has to come in the form of her daughters, whether it's going to be Arya or Sansa, or potentially her, her bastard nephew, Jon Snow. So I think that Stoneheart will probably go north at some point. And I think the surviving brotherhood's brotherhood would, would go north with her to either confront the others, or perhaps Stoneheart hears that Jon Snow has taken Rob Stark's crown and is like, fuck that shit. I'm, <laughs> that ain't happened to my watch because, you know, in Feast, she's, Stoneheart is shown holding Rob Stark's crown because they retrieve it back from uh, from the phrase in Feast for Crows and or Dance of Dragons. Actually, it's in Dance of Dragons. What was it? It's in Feast. That it's they Feast, take it yeah. back from. Is it from Edwin Frey they take it back from? Or P- Peter Frey, one of the two. It's from Ryman Frey because he gives Ryman it to Frey. his prostitute. Uh, yep. And then Catelyn hangs him and takes it back. Yep. Yep. So I think that when Jon becomes king of the north, I think that will be the reason why Stoneheart will go back north to exact some vengeance on Jon for stealing Rob's crown. Because that is a plot point from A Storm of Swords where Catelyn is talking with Rob and Rob says, I plan on naming Jon my heir because he, Rob believes that both Bran and Rickon are dead. And Catelyn is very opposed to this, but Rob kind of goes ahead and does it anyways. And I think that will probably have some ramifications down the road for Jon, for Stoneheart. And we'll probably have something to do with Stoneheart's ultimate fate, because I don't think that she makes it out alive from the series altogether. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, good stuff, sir. I definitely agree with that. This is maybe kind of zooming out a little too far, but I do think them to have more of a purpose than just to be, you know, fodder for the carry-on crows. I think they're very much wrapped up in broader themes George is speaking to about revenge and justice. Um, but I yes. think there's also kind of a cool insight he can give in terms of let's say, a political movement that has a lot of energy to start out and a lot of righteousness, and then what happens as that kind of righteousness and momentum kind of falls away, you know, as you Hmm. undercome new leadership. Um, That could even be reflective of stuff going on in our times as at certain points you're galvanized and then, you know, three weeks later um, you kind of fall into a rut when it comes to political energy. So um, I'd really (laughs) love to see George kind of play with that thread because we know a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire is informed by his worldview and the politics he's seen take place before his eyes. And I think that's something that we don't really get a chance to explore in any of the other plot threads because I think, like we said, we're all gung-ho Brotherhood Without Banners during Clash and Storm of Swords, and then we kind of see where it is at the end of Feast and uh, Dance, and it's more like, eh, I love this, but now I kind of don't feel great about where this is going. So I'd love to see that play out or have some kind of relevance, but I think we'll definitely see more just because I don't know how much faith we should put in the original outline, but I did find it odd that Catelyn Stark took her kids north to the wall where Jon Snow was, which led me to think that John and Catelyn did have some kind of cross purpose at some point together. Uh, maybe I got those facts exactly wrong, but the fact that she went no, you're right. uh, north for freedom after Winterfell fell to Tyrion uh, makes me think that there's something between those two that has yet to come to fruition. Yeah, and, I, and the part of that outline too is that Jon Snow doesn't let them stay at Castle Black because he's the Lord Commander there. And he kicks them out of Castle Black and they have to go north of the wall, which probably won't happen in this case. But I think that conflict dynamic between John and Catelyn will remain. And the stuff we talked about in earlier Game of Thrones chapters between Catelyn and John, in my opinion, will have payoffs down the road come The Wind's Winter or A Jeremy Spring or whatever book it is that, that it's going to be in. Well said, both of you. Totally agreed. I think it's going to be interesting to see which direction the Brotherhood goes in and how relevant they stay. Uh, and our final question for this episode comes from our uh, friend Frank B., and uh, my question is, and perhaps this is best suited for its own special episode, but what do you guys think is the fate of the Lord of the Rainwood, Admiral of the Narrow Sea, and Hand of the King, Lord Davos Seaworth? 
You both differ on the fate of his patron, and I wonder if that impacts what you believe happens to Davos. Is he there for the burning of Shireen? Does he abandon Stannis before or after it? Does he make it south to Maria only to be caught up in Egan's invasion? Thanks for the pod, it's the best. And thank you, sir. Thank you. For my part, I doubt he's there for the burning of Shireen. It seems like that's going to be kind of the point, that if Davos was there, it wouldn't have happened. That he would have been able to talk Stannis out of it, or smuggle the, the kid away again, or try to. So I think they'll probably be separate at that point. I, I'm not sure he abandoned Stannis. I think I, I disagree with Jeff on that count. I think Stan- Davos' <laughs> Davos's instinct, I think, is going to be to uh, get to Stannis any way he can, especially if he thinks that Stannis thinks he's dead. Davos is going to be certainly away from communication, I think, for the first chunk of wins, because he's going to be on Skagos, which is, of course, one of the remote parts of Westeros, so he won't be hearing any news from the south. I think it would be interesting to like end wins on a cliffhanger for Davos, where he's, whether he's deciding to go back south or to stay in the north and help Stannis. <laughs> Me, personally, I imagine Davos coming home at the very end, like his last chapter is him walking into the into his, his, his house his castle, his keep, and, and meeting Maria and the little kids in kind of the last few paragraphs. That might be an overly uh, uh, sentimental view on it, but that's always kind of what I've pictured for Davos. I lean towards him staying in the north and being our POV on Rickon, Osha, the Skygosi, Wex, that kind of cr- crew of characters as they deal with a long night in uh, Dream of Spring. And then I think, I imagine Davos like kind of finding Stannis broken or finding him dead, depending on how he goes. And then going home at that point. What do you guys Interesting. think? Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I don't think there's any way Shireen burns if Davos is present at all. And I also don't think he would abandon him per se. I think it's probably similar to the show in the fact that he will be sent away in some purpose. And it could be, hey, Davos, go home and see to your family. You know, we heard about what's happening in the Rainwood. So that could be a pretense for it. But I would like to see some interaction between Stannis and Davos after the fact. Because if anyone is going to give Stannis some shit for it, it's Davos. And I'd really like to see what that exchange (laughs) is like. And giving shit is probably like the kindest way to say what Davos would feel about that. But I think one thing that's really interesting is that Davos has been our insight into Stannis for basically, you know, two thirds of his entire run in the series. And I really mm-hmm. liked in uh, Dance Dragons where we saw Stannis through Asha's eyes or Theon's eyes through the wind sample chapter. And mm-hmm. I think by virtue of separating Davos and Stannis, um, we can have more fun uh, kind of along those lines. And Davos being one of our few lowborn characters, I would love to see him interact with a uh, young Griff's camp and see, you know, just kind of what happens i really haven't thought much about what could happen if davos you know makes it down there and he ends up being taken capture or just you know holding court with them just to you know kind of do some kind of negotiation so i'd love to see davos make it south just to see him interact with the new set of characters it's just one of those things where i just don't know how much time is left in the story to have him retrieve rickon because i definitely think he's bringing him back to winterfell as stannis held winterfell and then to just send davos south again when both him and everyone up north really kind of knows at this point what kind of threat is coming. Um, it seems kind of odd to send him south, but I'd very much like to see it just because of the insight that Davos gives us into the rest of the world that we don't get from other characters. Yeah, it's, that's really interesting. I, I, I'm not married to my own theory, um, which is that Davos will not make it back to Stannis, that they will never see each other again. But I do like the idea of Davos being the Odysseus-type character in A Song of Ice and Fire, of finding out that his wife his wife's home is being occupied by people and he has to go home and, and clean clean house for uh for his family. So my my basic theory of it, and then I wrote about this probably two or three years ago at this at this juncture, is that Davos will return from Skagos to White Harbor and we'll hear about Aegon's invasion in the south 
And one of the things that's interesting and that is set up through all of Davos's chapters from Storm of Swords onwards is that he he feels a lot of guilt over his family, over the deaths of his sons on the Blackwater, over leaving Maria alone and not being able to take care of her, that guilt over also being not entirely faithful to her in the past as well. And he has that really fantastic letter that he writes in his final published chapter where he says, you know, I'm so sorry, Maria, you know, raise the boys right and take them across the narrow sea if you get the chance. What I think is also interesting, too, is that Stannis has this whole line in A Storm of Swords where Davos challenges him on why did you choose Robert over Ares? Because Stannis is thundering on about, you know, it was their duty to to bow, to bend the knee to me because they're, you know, my loyal subjects and they're all traitors if they don't bend the knee. It's like, well, you supported your brother as opposed to the one true king of Westeros. And Robert, or rather Stannis has that line of, uh, that was a hard choosing. You don't know Davos, my king or my brother, or my family, my blood or my duty, that sort of thing. I think that's, for me, I would like to see that have a dovetailing effect for Davos, where Davos has to be put in the same situation where he has to choose his family or his king. And in this case, going to rescue his family from Aegon, because one of the things we know from the end of A Dance of Dragons and into early into the Winds of Winter is that the Rain House, which is the potential home, we don't know this for certainty, of where the Seaworth family is, is living in. We know they live in, they have a keep somewhere in the Rainwood, has been taken by the Golden Company. And there's mention made by Harry Strickland that, you know, these will, having these noble families will make for great ransoms. We can ransom these guys. And so we can imagine a scenario where Davos will go south either to ransom his family or save them from these sellswords who may have other duties as we come to find out and try to put Aegon onto the Iron Throne. But I, I think it'd be awesome to, to have something... Honestly, I think it'd be awesome too to have something like in season six and season seven where you have Davos being the hand of the king to Jon Snow. I think that's a really cool dynamic. One of the highlights, I think, is that Jon-Davos relationship. So I could see a scenario too where Davos comes back. He can't get to Winterfell because it's either in some sort of battle with humans or with the others. So he teams up with Jon Snow as he thinks that's the best way to get back to Stannis. He never makes it back or he finds out find Stannis after the fact, after he burns Shireen. But I, I would love to see a John Davos pairing because they're two honorable duty bound men uh, who are, John isn't lowborn like Davos is, but they both have a similar outlook in life where they're both looked down on by the society and by the structure, by the feudal structure of Westeros as a whole. So I, I can see a number of possibilities. I favor mine, of course, but I think that you guys make great arguments for your for your vantage points as well. Well, thank you kindly, sir. Uh, I, I could definitely see Davos going south in an attempt to ransom his family. Going south in an attempt to save them, while very heroic, strikes me as not necessarily the kind of thing the pragmatic, world-weary Davos would think he could really pull off if he's going up, unless he unless he has a, he's taking men with him. I could, I could see him like heading south with like a sh- if he's got like a ship full of. You know, rare unicorn horns from Skagos that they gave him as, as reward for his heroism. I could, I could, I could see him like heading south with a boat to try to trade that as ransom to the Golden Company for his family's safety. That strikes me as a possible Davos thing to do. Yeah. Counterpoint: Davos does risk all to bring the onions and the fish to Stannis at Storm's End from Robert's Rebellion. I could see a scenario where he has a boat full of unicorn horns. Let's go with that. Let's keep that trend going. And he brings them and he pretends to be a trader from Skagos here to trade with the Golden Company. And he uses that as a ruse to get his family out of the clutches of the Golden Company or something like that. I'm, I'm probably talking like a viewing the story as too too romantic and too heroic than the story that Mars is telling. But that does. I mean, I think that would be a cool story. Personally. No, that's a, that sounds delightful. I'm entirely on board with that. 
that puts it at what three castles that are going to fall due to mummery and trickery and the uh, <laughs> winds of winter so exactly but yeah so lots of good possibilities thanks frank for the question it was a led to a lot of great discussion but this episode is not a call in or is not a question and answer episode this question is about brand four but before we get into that i just want to quickly remind folks that if you guys are listening to this our next patreon only episode all about the past present and future of volantis is coming your way on july 26th so if you have not signed up for our patreon go ahead over to patreon.com forward slash not a cast asoif Check it out and sign up if you like to. Yes, indeed. Uh, we're looking forward to that. Volantis, as we said, is one of our favorite settings in the series. And we're going to have a bunch to say about its past and future. But uh, a, a different different kind of myth and past and backstory at work today <laughs> as, we, as we get into uh, Brand 4 Game of Thrones. Yet another great Brand chapter. Absolutely. So this is a Game of Thrones Brand 4. Bran watches his brother Rickon run with the wolves from a castle tower high above, wishing he could be down running with them. But he can't. And his thoughts turn angry. He's a cripple. Bran has to brush away tears knowing that he's nearly a man grown and real men don't cry. Not true. Bran's thoughts return to his dream, the one where he flew, but he can't fly. Goddamn crows are fucking liars. Bran, um, I guess he thinks that. Actually, that's what Jeff thinks. Crows are all liars, old Nan agrees next to the bed. And she knows a story about crows, but Bran doesn't want to hear any stories about crows. Once in his lifetime, he liked Nan and her stories, but he's sick and tired of them now. You see, Nan had been sent to keep Bran company and to keep him from feeling lonely, but she hadn't really helped him. I hate your stories, Bran tells Nan. Bran then gets some history on old Nan. She had come to Winterfell long ago as a wet nurse for a former Bran Stark. No, not Ned's brother. Ned's father's older brother. No, Ned's father's father's brother. The story changes, you see. The, uh, anyways, the child that Nan had nursed tragically died when he was three, but Nan had stayed on, living on past the deaths of her sons to Robert's Rebellion and her grandson to the Greyjoy Rebellion. She had outlived everyone but her great-grandson, Hodor. But Bran doesn't want any stories about the past. He wants his mom and dad. He wants to ride his pony with his brother. He wants it to be the way it was before. But that wasn't possible. Everyone had left him. His father, mother, and sisters were in the south with the, reten- with the Winterfell retinue. Meanwhile, even the Starks who were in Winterfell, his brothers Rob and Rickon, they had better things to do. Rob was Rob the Lord now, always chatting with Roderick, Hollis Mullen, or Theon Greyjoy, while little Rickon only came when Rob was out with his boys doing lordly things, and only then he would whine about when was Rob coming home. I could tell you a story about Brandon the Builder, old Nan says. They were always your favorite. Several millennia ago, Brandon the Builder built Winterfell and maybe the Wall, but old Nan frequently confused Brandon the Builder with her Brandon, or his long-dead uncle Brandon, who was killed by the Mad King. Regardless, those weren't Bran's favorite stories. His favorite stories were the scary ones. Oh, my sweet summer child, what do you know of fear? Fear is for the winter, my little lord, when the snows fall a hundred feet deep and the ice wind comes howling out of the north. Fear is for the long night when the sun hides its face for years at a time and little children are born and live and die all in darkness while the direwolves grow gaunt and hungry and the white walkers move through the woods. Oh, hell yeah. We're getting some long night world building. I'm bouncing my chair. As old Nan explains it, long ago, there was a cold and hard winter that fell for a generation. Many starved or froze to death in darkness. And and through the dark came the others riding pale dead horses and leading whites against humans. The others hated iron, fire, the sun, and every creature with hot blood in their veins. They fed their creatures on the flesh of maidens and human children. There was hope. The children of the forest remained hidden in their wooden cities and hollow hills, and the last hero searched for them with a sword, horse, dog, and a dozen companions. All of his friends died. His horse and dog died after them. His sword froze so hard that it broke. 
and the others smelled the hot blood in him and hunted him with packs of pale white spiders big as hounds. Great Twitter account, by the way. And bam, Zora High enters the room. Who's that? Azora High, Rob Stark, John, Stannis Baratheon. No, sir. Hodor has entered the room. He's come with Maester Lewin, but Brands and Brand is to be carried down to the audience hall at Winterfell to meet guests. Who are the guests? Tyrion Lannister, a few Lannister guards, and a few Night's Watchmen are there awaiting Bran. Hodor says, Hodor, and they head downstairs. In the hall, Rob sits atop his father's high seat, and he's got his sword out. Oh boy. Rob proclaims that any member of the Night's Watch is welcome at Winterfell. Aren't you leaving someone out, Rob? Why, yes, you are. Tyrion notices and says as much. Any man of the Night's Watch, but not me. Do I take your meaning, boy? Yep, it's on. Rob ain't Tyrion's boy. He's the lord here while his father's away. Then learn a lord's courtesy, Tyrion tells Rob. Tyrion snarks that John was better at being graceful than Rob, even though he was a bastard. And at the mention of John, Bran exclaims, John! Rob asks for Bran to be brought over to him and then turns to Tyrion. You said you had business with... Yes, Tyrion does. First, how'd you fall? I never, Bran insists. That's curious, Tyrion replies. But Tyrion has a gift for Bran. Do you like to ride Bran? Yeah. But Bran can't ride anymore. Everyone says as much. Nonsense, Tyrion replies. With the right horse and the right saddle, even a cripple can ride. But Bran's not having any of that shit. He ain't no cripple. Then I am not a dwarf. My father will rejoice to hear it, Tyrion responds. Tyrion then suggests using an unbroken smart horse and then gives Maester Lewin the specs for a special saddle. More on this later. Rob is puzzled. Why is Tyrion doing this? Well, for one, Jon asked Tyrion to help Bran in any way he could, but for another, I have a tender spot in my heart for cripples and bastards and broken things. But then the door flies open and Rickon, Shaggy Dog, Grey Wind, and Summer come bounding in, not liking the smell of Tyrion one bit. They come at Tyrion for both sides and Tyrion prepares to exfiltrate out of Winterfell Hall quick, fast, and in a hurry. But just as he backs away, the direwolves come snapping at him, knocking him over. But just before the direwolves can tear Tyrion to pieces, Bran shouts, No! Summer! To me! And then Rob does the same for Greywind, and then Bran shouts for Rickon to do the same. And Rickon finally and reluctantly says, Home, Shaggy! Home now! With the danger now passing, one of Tyrion's men asks if he's okay. He's fine, save for a torn sleeve and pissing his pants. Meanwhile, Rob has no idea why they attacked. No doubt they mistook me for dinner, Tyrion snarks. And then Tyrion finally prepares to leave. But just before he does, Maester Lewin asks for a moment. He consorts with Rob, and Rob offers Tyrion the hospitality of Winterfell. Spare me your false courtesies, boy. You do not love me, and you do not want me here. I saw an inn outside your walls in the winter town. I'll find a bed there, and both of us will sleep easier. And then Tyrion and his Lannister guard depart. The four knights' watchmen that remain are then offered the hospitality of Winterfell, which they accept. Bran notes that Rob's offer to the knights' watchmen is stiff and awkward. The boy lord is unused to his duties and his roles as Lord Stark, it would appear. Bran is then carried to his tower again by Hodor, and Bran tells the direwolf Summer that they'll soon go hunting together. And then Bran sleeps and dreams. This time in dream, Bran is climbing an ancient windowless tower, and he looks down and sees that he's a thousand miles up and he nearly loses his grip, but he holds on for dear life. He knows that he can't fly. Above him, the shape of gargoyles peer down at him with eyes glowing red as hot coals. Once they might have been lions, but now they were twisted and grotesque. The gargoyles whisper to themselves, and Bran tries not to hear what they're saying. But then they dislodge themselves from the stone and come down the side of the tower to Bran. I didn't hear, Bran cries. I didn't. Bran wakes to darkness in Hodor. The stable boy washes and cleans Bran, dressing him, and then takes him down to the great hall for dinner with Rob and the night's watchman. In the hall, they eat a good dinner of suckling pig, pigeon pie, turnip soaked in butter. Hell yeah, food porn. Bran takes in the seating arrangements. Yorn is seated between Rob and Maester Lewin as he was the senior man among the watchmen. Conversation ensues. How's John doing? 
He's Sir Alistair's bane, Yorn replies. And how's dear old beloved Uncle Bedjin? Uh, about that. Well, there's some hard news, as we've heard in previous chapters. Benjamin has disappeared, having been sent north to the wall to find Sir Waymer Royce. He's most likely dead. My uncle is not dead, Rob yells twice. Whatever, dude, Yorn says. Another black brother responds that Benjamin knows the haunted forest better than anyone. If anyone can find a way back, he will. But Yorn says that good men have already gone out into those woods and they've never come back. And then we get something oh so interesting. Bran can only think of the end of Old Nan's story. You remember the one, right? The one about the long night, the last year, and the others? The children will save him, Bran blurts out. The children of the forest! Everyone's startled by Bran's assertion. Lewin says that the children of the forest are dead and, not, and have been gone for thousands of years. But Yorin's like, down here? Yeah. Up there? Shit's not like it is down here. But more seriously, he says with an obvious double meaning, up there, a man can't always tell what's alive and what's dead. After dinner, Rob carries Rob himself carries Bran up to his room, and when his older brother places Bran onto his bed, he doesn't just leave like he has before. He stays. They remain in silence for a few moments, but then Rob talks about finding Bran a horse. But Bran has something else in mind. Are they ever coming back? Bran asks Rob. Yes, Rob replies. Mother will be home soon. Maybe we can go out and ride to meet her when she comes. Wouldn't that surprise her to see you a horse? And then afterwards, we'll ride north to see the wall. We won't even tell John we're coming. We'll just be there one day, you and me. It will be an adventure. An adventure, Bran repeats wistfully. And then Rob begins sobbing in the darkness of the room. So Bran reaches out and finds Rob's hand. Their fingers twine together. And that is A Game of Thrones, Bran 4. A chapter of character development, world building, and it's all built on a foundation of significant and deep emotional investment that I feel as a reader, but that's built around Bran, his disability, and his family relationships. What did you guys think about this chapter? Yeah, I loved it. It's another knockout Bran chapter. He's really four for four in this book. This is, I would compare it to the first three in that it's a little less focused. You know, when you think about Bran's first three chapters, you think, oh, the direwolf one. Oh, the, the one where he climbs the tower. Oh, the dream one. This is like, oh, the old Nan story one and the Tyrion gives the saddle one and the he hangs out with Rob one. So, But <laughs> but that's, that's not even necessarily a criticism because all the scenes work really well and they all yes. have kind of different emotional tones and different memorable iconic moments that come up. So even if it's a little more scattered than the first three, I think it's just as good. Yeah, um, I really love it. Uh, it's just so grounded in very accessible emotion, things that we've all felt um, in mm -hmm. terms of longing, feelings of abandonment, of I just woke up from this bomb-ass dream and now I don't have whatever I had in that dream. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just really well done. And coming off the last brand chapter that was so fantastical and kind of heady to have something that's literally grounded compared to the flying of the previous chapter. It's very masterful work by George here, just regrounding the character in something very real. I just really love this chapter. Like Emmett said, um, it's a little less focused, but it kind of has its neat little three-act structure of its own. And it all just kind of starts with Bran, kind of feeling the loss of not being able to play with the wolves and Rickon in the end. But at the end, you know, he's sharing a moment with Rob about, hey, maybe one day I can ride with you and, you know, go hunting in the uh, wolf's wood with uh, summer and gray wind and all that so a hundred percent agree i think that emotional stakes that martin builds into brand storyline are so important and they're so meaningful i mean i even when i was doing the chapter summary and, and i do this every single freaking time i read this chapter i always get choked up at the end of the chapter because it it's a three-act structure like you said but it builds into that crescendo where you get rob and brand sharing a brotherly moment and 
I don't know about you guys, but I, I've, I have three brothers in real life, and I think that's something that definitely appeals to me about A Song of Ice and Fire is that it feel, all the relationships feel very grounded and they also feel realistic to me. So I can understand that feeling of sharing a brotherly affection. And, you know, I don't have... I myself have, do not suffer any obvious physical disability besides balding, I guess. And, um, but, uh, and not, neither do my brothers, but at the same time, I can, you know, I can, I can understand the, the emotions that Bran is experiencing here in this chapter. And it, it definitely appeals to me on a deep personal level. Yeah, agreed. I think even if you haven't had to comfort someone who's uh, undergoing a recent disability, I think you can relate to it in a level of someone who's had to tell their kid or their younger sibling that everything's going to be all right when they don't know if it's going to be all right. And that's something I really get out of the end of this chapter. And yeah, I have a younger brother. The age gap between me and him is actually roughly the same as between Rob and Bran. And yeah, really? I, 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 I remember definitely moments of being kind of in between childhood and adulthood myself, but having to kind of act like I was older and more mature than I was to make him feel better mm-hmm. or, to, or even really to comfort myself, if, even if I was telling him I was comforting him, you know? You get that, that sense from this chapter, that sense of the family bond among the Starks, and that's that sense that that's what keeps them going. That's what's keeping Bran and Rob going through this difficult time, is their love for each other and their love for the family members uh, that are gone. Yeah, um, I don't have any brothers. I have one sister, and she's actually uh, nine years older than me, so um, oh, she's wow. almost more like a young aunt. Um, but sure, I def- sure. But I definitely uh, get it. So um, uh, one of her younger daughter, uh, my niece, um, she has a physical disability where the tendon in her right arm and right legs a little bit shortened than it should be. So she has a little bit uh, limited range of mobility. (laughs) So I can really uh, sympathize with the fact of rallying around a family member like that. Um, She's undergone a procedure since. So she has almost normal and full uh, range of uh, motion in her foot now and um, her hand is coming along. She does a uh, physical therapy on a regular basis and all that. But the feelings about, you know, hey, this is a family member who needs all the support and love you can use because, you know, she's had this since birth and Bran is very young. So sometimes they don't understand, you know, everything, like all the consequences or how permanent or how long lasting uh, some of these physical ailments might be. So that part of the, what's it called, chapter really speaks to me and to my familial experience, uh, so to speak. It's hard, though, because Rob is not just a brother anymore to Bran. He doesn't have the freedom to be able to hang out with Bran and offer him the the affection and the comfort that Bran could use. And Bran is relegated to spending most of his days with old Nan, who is not necessarily the warmest, kindest, fuzziest person that we're going to encounter in A Song of Ice and Fire. Rob is thrust into a role of being a political leader at the age of 14. And I think that's something that... It's, it's a lot to ask a 14-year-old kid. I, I think it's really, it's, it's hard to imagine me at the age of 14 leading the greatest castle of the North and being essentially the Lord Paramount of hundreds of other greater or lesser lords in the North and having to go around and ensure the defenses of things. And I, I feel like I would definitely do a lot of pretending to be in charge as opposed to actually being in charge, if that makes sense. Absolutely. But I think there's also a sense from Bran that while Rob has been thrust into this role earlier than expected, this is always the role Rob was going to play. This is the role that yes. Rob was raised to play. This is the role he always knew was coming. Bran 
has been ripped away from the role he thought he was going to play. The knight going down to King's Landing and getting involved in tourneys and saving maidens and all that good stuff. That's been destroyed for him and he doesn't know what his future is going to be. And then he was all for this alternate future in his dreams, a world of opening his third eye and looking at dragons and the Horn of Winter and becoming a wizard. And now, like, it seems like that's been, been taken away from him too. It seems like it's been a lie or it was an illusion hmm. as he's wondering throughout this chapter. So he's got this, he's got this disappointment and this disillusionment, this despair, but uh, I think what Manu said is important. There's this arc throughout the chapter where you can see, like, seeds of hope and uh, a new foundation he can build for himself uh, emerging by the end of the chapter, and I think that's what's really important. What struck me upon rereading Bran 4 is the comparison between Bran and Euron, which is something I write a fair amount about over on the Tumblr <laughs> and the Twitter. You know, there's the, I think, well-founded theory at this point that Euron himself had his third eye opened by Bloodraven as well in his dreams when he was a child. He's got the, the great monologue from the Reaver, uh, When I was a boy, I dreamt that I could fly. When I woke or couldn't, or so the maester said, but what if he lied? Which is exactly what happens to Bran over the course of this chapter and the rest of A Game of Thrones and The Clash of Kings. But uh, as Euron explained that to Victarion in The Reaver and later on to Aaron in The Forsaken, what this meant to him was permission to do whatever he wanted to anyone he wanted. That the gods were silent, he had all the power, and he could start preying on people at will, starting with his family. And that this, you know that's the direction that opening Euron's third eye and exposing him to power let him down. And Bran, I think you can see, emerging in this chapter as a contrast to that, that Bran is not going to fall down this dark road, that he's going to find something better and more valuable to build his life around, even as he's being faced with the destruction of his dreams. That he's, you know, he starts off this chapter kind of being resentful of a brother in even the same way Euron was. Euron has killed several of his brothers and feeling angry about being lied to and losing everyone. You could see this as, as, as a, a moment where he starts down the dark path, as an Anakin moment where he starts embracing the darkest part of himself. But he doesn't. From this chapter forward, he's, he's still the, the sweet, loving boy he was that we met in this first couple chapters. And I think you can see several reasons why that happens, as we'll get into as we go in the chapter. But I think, you know, the combination of old Nan's story of Tyrion's gift and that final moment with Rob, I think seal seal the deal over why Bran is going to go off on a, on a different arc than Euron has gone on. Yeah. What's interesting, too, is that Bran does indulge that darkness, especially later on, form of skin-changing Hodor. He has not fully embraced that. Like, Euron is basically the dude who's like, the power is mine. I can now do awful, shitty, horrible, terrible things. And Bran is like kind of dipping his toe in that a little bit as we see in A Dance with Dragons. But I, I agree wholeheartedly that Bran is not Euron. And the theory, this probably should have been our bad theory, that Bran is going to be evil and turn into the Night King or Euron Reborn is a bad theory and is ugly. But I, I, I think that it's important here too and that Bran is grounded in these family dynamics and that Bran is in a loving family. I mean, they have their differences, but they're they're good people for the most part. Euron, is, his brothers are Balon and Victarion and pre-drowned priest Aaron Greyjoy. So he doesn't have the same structure there. I can't imagine a scenario where Euron is lying in bed and Victarion comes and comforts him and holds his hand or Balon does the same thing. I think they would say, like, get the fuck up, weakling. I think that would probably be the the essentially the the emotional stake and impact that the, the that the Greyjoys would have. But Bran has Rob Stark and Rick Hahn, and he has Maester Lewin and Old Nan and these other characters, which help support him and bring him into being the better version of the eventual Three-Eyed Crow, as I think that Bran's arc will eventually take that direction down the road. And I think that's important, is that you have that foundation that of good of a good family there that Euron Greyjoy simply didn't have. 
Yeah, um, it almost reads like a wild twist on the whole nature versus nurture debate where uh, Bran and Euron are assaulted by like this manifestation of nature, the three-eyed raven, the or three-eyed crow, rather, and the old gods. <laughs> um, but when they wake up from that dream, uh, what nurture is around them? What family do they have? And obviously the difference between Starks and Greyjoys is one of the more pivotal themes of the series because, you know, Theon Greyjoy and um, his kind of lost identity or mixed identity is a big, uh, what's it called, story arc. So I definitely think this is kind of a way to see what having a family like the Starks means. And I know you guys are all very pro Ned Stark and the legacy he leaves behind. <laughs> and I think all of that kind of wraps up in, together in terms of the Starks are able, you know, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. And, you know, what yes. kind of binds that pack? And that kind of is the strength that Bran is able to draw from to, you know, endure and keep going when right now this has got to be his lowest moment, you know, waking up from a dream where he could fly. Um, the reality of his, you know, broken body settling in, um, watching, you know, Rob go on to be the Lord. His father is the hand. Um, his uh, bastard brother is now a man of the Night's Watch, you know, more or less. So he's not only not able to move physically, but he's in a state where he's no longer able to progress socially or, you know, exist in the society in any capacity other than he's, you know, just a lordling, but he can't even have children. So, I mean, his prospects in terms of what was kind of set out for him that Emmett alluded to earlier, um, they've all, you know, been halted pretty much. Like, there is mm -hmm. no real light at the end of the tunnel as far as Brand can see now. And some of that, I don't know if he can fully grasp at his young age. I don't think he's thinking about having children and heirs and all that. Um, but it's, it's an immobility that Brand is having to grapple with that's not just limited to his physical being. Yeah, I think that's a great point about Theon kind of exemplifying the Stark-Greyjoy gap. He's been stretched thin across that gap for most of his life. And yeah, Jeff, that's a, a great point about that this scene between Bran and Rob would never happen in the Greyjoy household. Quite the opposite. When Euron came in into your bedroom at night, it was because he wanted to do horrifying things to you. So yeah. it's, it's exactly the opposite kind of fraternal relationship. And yeah, you're totally right that, Jeff, that I I didn't mean to imply that Bran was this kind of untouched, oh, pure no, snow angel. But yeah, that his he's he's a character who kind of hovers on the on the edge, and we're supposed to I think constantly be comparing in the series characters who hover on the edge versus characters who have gone all the way in. I think you you can yes. see that in Danny's story, you can see that in Stannis's story. I think that's something that comes up over and over. Uh, the Lannisters, you know, the tension of which Lannister kid is going to be like Tywin and how is kind of kind of a version of this question. But yeah, then there's no there's no such ambiguity with Euron, who yeah, as you say, has been. Kind of going all in from day one. I think you could argue that his brother Robin was his version of Hodor. Euron says Robin had a, a soft head in the Forsaken when he's describing yeah. him to Aaron. So maybe he was that version of uh, a disabled person that he was uh, skin changing into. Makes my skin crawl. Exactly. You can sit. You can. You know, both Euron and Bran are, are the the second sons or the second adult sons of uh, Lord Paramount. They're their older brothers. Robin Balin are both. Uh, independent secessionist kings who were like trying to lead their people towards freedom from the Iron Throne. So I think there's there's a lot of connections here, and I think yeah, there's both par parallels and contrasts in terms of their powers, but to how they deal with them and how how you deal with the metaphysical world is something that of course come up comes up with Old Man's story, but it starts with Bran in this place of not wanting to listen to it and being very angry and grief stricken. He's jealous of Rickon. The fact that he's just watching Rickon play with the wolves at the start of this chapter implies that, like, Bran feels disconnected from the wolves and his Stark identity. That like, you know, I loved Winterfell, I loved to climb, but now he feels not just abandoned, but betrayed. Like, everything he loves has kind of stabbed him in the back. Like, Winterfell let him fall, 
and the wolf, the, his family left him here, and the wolves are running around without him. He feels lonely, and he feels lied to at this, this like Manu said, he's at his lowest point. Definitely. He's, he's at his lowest point. His dreams are being shattered both literally and figuratively because he has the dreams that he can fly, and the, he had the ah. dreams of being a knight when he was a kid. Bam! Connection. And uh, clever, so clever boy. it's all kind of crashing down on Bran, which is ironic because he's high up in the tower and he can't fall at this juncture, though he does fall in his dream later on. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting, too, is that George R. R. Martin uses that juncture where Bran can't run away for old Nan to start telling her stories. I think that's really... I, I can picture this. It's, it's funny. I can really picture this because... I have had surgery before. I've had to like sit and watch TV for like hours and hours and hours because there was nothing else to do when I was a teenager. And uh, I, I can see Brad being in the same situation where he's like, I can't run. I can't do anything but just listen to this this old lady tell her stories. And I think it's really interesting that that's the juncture where Martin builds 75-80% about what we know about the others in their backstory in this in a few paragraphs here in a Game of Thrones brand four. Yeah, I love the lead in to old man's story where he's not he's not even paying attention to her. Like, he's sitting at the windowsill, looking at it, Rickon on the walls, and he's just going, meh, I don't want to listen to you whenever old Nan talks. Which is a great way for t- to tell it for Martin, because that's the way the story sneaks up on you. Like, the, the chapter doesn't start with old Nan tucking Bran in about to tell him a bedtime story, so you're ready and you're listening. Like, the focus of the chapter at first seems to be you're in Bran's head, he's thinking about what's going on, that's where you are. Old Nan is, like, in the background of the scene, she's in the background of your head, and, and then suddenly she just completely takes over the chapter out of nowhere and there's this yeah yes there's this great meta quality to it where like you say she is a captive audience we're almost the captive audience along with Bran for this story when Bran says he hates stories old Nan says I have a story about a boy who hated stories <laughs> which is also again very meta it's like there's there's no way to escape stories even if you hate them and say you're not involved well there's going to be a story about that too like there's there's no way out of this kind of narrative process like you say, it's a huge info dump in terms of what we what we know about the others. So, like, she's giving this this backstory to the entire universe almost in passing. It's it's great because Bran wants more than anything to access the power he saw in his dream. He wants to be part of that world again. And old Nan is the one actually telling him about it. And she's the one he's dismissing and doesn't want to listen to. But she's the one, more than anyone else in Winterfell right now, who can actually tell him about that stuff. And that's I love how the scene is executed that way. And she's never wrong. Exactly. No, and I really love, like you say, that they don't just start with uh, Bran, you know, being tucked in and diving right into the stories because, like I said, we're trying to ground ourselves back into this character after this, you know, high-flying dream uh, chapter, and we want to live a little bit with the dismay that Bran is feeling, or else these stories, especially stories about darkness and fear, are really not going to land, and we need to have Bran's initial rejection about stories about knights or Brandon the Builder, um, because he shouldn't be a boy who just had this fall has been debilitated and now he's just in bed you know ready for more stories so i think that lead-in and the lead into a you know specifically dark story really helps this chapter come alive totally and i like it's important that it's led in in terms of brand's relationship to scary stories like brand says that the, the scary stories are the kinds he likes and old nan frames that as a mark of immaturity, almost, or as a mark of not understanding the weight of those stories, which, again, is kind of meta. Like, it's old Nan saying, oh, these are the stories you like to the audience? Well, are you thinking about, you know, kind of the, the real horror and bloodshed behind them and that they should be chilling your veins, you shouldn't be cheering them on? It reminds me of almost like Jurassic Park. Like, horror is something that kids think they like. 
It's something that you get excited about when it's just a ride or it's just a history thing or it's just an attraction. But when it's a real monster in your face hunting you down, then, you know, Old Nan is pointing out, what, what does it say that these are your favorite stories? That, you know, these stories of human pain and misery. That doesn't necessarily make you a bad person, of course. Horror is my favorite genre. But to, like, not just <laughs> passively accept what's being given to you. You know, for me, like, the moral center of horror is realizing that you're, ideally, that you're invested in what's happening because you don't want these people to die. That when you're on the edge of your seat in the slasher movie, it's because you're empathizing and because you want to escape the situation. And I think Old Nan is trying to get that across, too, that Bran has been kind of passively enjoying these horror stories. And that he needs to start actually projecting himself into them so he can understand what it would be like to be the last hero. Because he's, he has to know that because he's going to be. Old Nan is trying to get him to start taking these stories seriously because they're not only are they real, but he's part of them. Like, the line was that line from Pirates of the Caribbean. You best start believing in ghost stories, Miss Turner. You're in one. <laughs> oh, God, I watched it last night, actually. <laughs> so uh, It's a great movie. Yeah, it's Perfect. actually really sound. No, I think it's I think that's, that's a great thing. I think one of the um, things that, if I can relate it to my own upbringing is that I grew up in a like really looking in enjoying war movies and, and watching war movies and kind of enjoying the escapism of them in, in a way in a kind of a terrible way I guess and then like thinking like oh I would probably do okay in, a, in an environment like this in real life and then being in it in real life you're like no I don't, I don't really enjoy this like I, I can't really say that I find much to really appreciate about what I what I mean I appreciate what I saw in the theaters and I appreciate the artistry and everything like that but the reality was much different and much more intense brutal and horrifying than than what I was, was watching on the screen when I was you know 14 15 16 17 years old I think I was I was what 15 years old when Saving Private Ryan came out so I think it was mm -hmm. like uh, one of those types of things where I was like oh that's really cool and I mean it's it's horrible and brutal and everything like that but at the same time even if you're as you're watching the brutality you're also like yeah, this is there's there's something cool about this too. I think Brand's in that same sort of mental frame where he's thinking this is really cool to find out about the White Walkers and the others walking and spiders big as hounds hunting people down and killing children. And as you reread it, you're you're looking at these the stories that that old man is telling, you and you're like, this is this is awful because we know that these these things actually happened. Well, I mean, not in real life, but in the story, they actually happened that children were hunted down, that mothers smothered their babies before they could, you know, draw breath because they don't want them growing up to starve to death. And you're like, this is, this is fucking horrifying. This, this is, there's no, it's a scary story, but it's a scary story that's rooted in the reality of what the people from the long night experienced. And as we're likely going to find out in the winds of winter or in a dream of spring, it's, potentially rooted in what the people will experience when the others actually cross the wall and come south. Yeah, as much as there's anything that's metal as fuck in A Song of Ice and Fire, I think old man's stories are that, those stories in Euron, um, because you could imagine the story as the cover of an Iron Maiden uh, album cover or whatever, <laughs> um, just the ice spiders and the dead zombies with their sword. It evokes a very certain image. And in terms of the horror, I think another aspect of great horror, what great horror can be, is that it speaks to the human condition and the monstrosity within ourselves as people. Um, that's often, you know, kind of captured by these archetypes like Jason or Freddy Krueger or whatever. But you also see it kind of internalized, and we see it later with Bran, how uh, the way he works into Hodor, and even how he has his own uh, monster in terms of cold hands doing his own bidding. And who knows what exactly, you know, is the story surrounding that. But I think those are other key aspects of horror that uh, Martin's able to rope into this Bran storyline more broadly, especially as we progress into Storm and Dance and all that. I absolutely agree. I think it's an interesting contrast between the intensity of the fantasy imagery, the ice spiders being the strongest example of that, this 
instantly iconic image that has had us all kind of begging for more from Martin ever since. We just want to see more of those. It's very cinematic, very uh, yeah, 70s, 80s metal album cover, as you say, but it's contrasted with this admonition from old Nan that there's nothing exciting about yeah mothers smothering their babies or the images of dying with tears freezing on your cheeks. This is something com- Martin comes back to multiple times, this specific image of crying and feeling the tears freeze because the world outside you is just so cold and hateful it doesn't even care about your tears. That's, how, that's what happens to Sam at the Fist of the First Men. Big Bucket Wool and Dance with Dragons says he specifically does not want his men to die that way. He wants them to die fighting for the Ned's little girl because no one sings songs about men who die with the tears frozen on their cheeks. So this is you can see this is the image of like the worst fate for Martin possible. This is the if, if being burned to death is the worst fire fate, this is the horrible ice fate. This is the the ultimate abyss that the others can leave you in, where you have your your despair and your grief, and the natural world kind of rejects it and just freezes it on your cheeks, just keeps it there. I think you can you can see it reflected in the way Martin writes about war. I mean, you can draw parallels between this and the Broken Man speech. I mean, yes, there's this layer of fantasy imagery on top with the ice spiders and the zombies and so on, but the idea of people starving and being society being wrecked and being left alone and being hunted mercilessly is that is it that different from what Ramsey does with his dogs? I mean, it's you're not being hunted by zombies and spiders, but you're still being horribly mutilated and flayed and killed at the end of it. So I think you can see a a critique emerging there that Martin is saying this about war stories too. Like examine why you think this is fun or what you think is actually underpinning all of this action. And it's important that Bran kind of realizes it, that he goes, yeah, those are my favorite stories, I guess. But like the way Old Nan is describing it makes him feel bad about it in the same way that John starts to feel bad when Donal Noy is telling him about what underpins his victories. Again, are these the kind... How do you like to taste your victories now, Lord Snow? Are these the kinds of stories you like? So again, that's what separates Bran from Euron. When Euron had his vision of the Heart of Winter, he must he was probably like, yes, that sounds amazing. That's what I want to be. That's I want to lead that army of the dead. And here's, here's Bran going, oh, I don't necessarily know if I want to be a part of that. I don't... I, that's that's not. I, I like the stories for their excitement, but I don't. I don't want to take part in that kind of thing. You can see kind of Brand sensing that, and I think that's an important contrast. The story exists to let us know what the others are like, but I think that's its purpose in Brand's arc is to indicate that he doesn't. He's going to be called to adventure against this. He's he saw the heart of winter in his fever dream, and now he's learning more about what that brings with it because he's being prepared to, in some way, lead the fight against it. Yes, great point. Amen, brother. <laughs> All those good things. But then, of course, uh, the story gets interrupted at a crucial moment, as, as so many good stories do. And then uh, Tyrion gets swept away for the scene with, with uh, Rob and Tyrion in the Winterfell, in Winterfell's Great Hall. We have all this setting up of Bran's despair of this darkness. Even the story of the um, Long Night and the White Walkers, or the others, rather, um, is kind of setting up this darkness and despair for Bran to kind of bounce back from and arc kind of, you know, through this chapter. And that starts with him entering a very icy scene in and of itself uh, between Rob and Tyrion. As Tyrion claims, uh, or as Bran notices, Rob has his sword drawn and unsheathed, uh, laid across his legs, which is obviously a sign of hostility or um, aggressiveness uh, here. And Bran kind of arrives and kind of, he doesn't defuse the situation, but he comes here, you know, ready to accept some sort of gift. Um, Tyrion acting on behalf of John, uh, you know, kind of gives him the saddle and gives Maester Lewin some tips on how to pick out a horse that might be appropriate for the child. And this is all, all part of the process of kind of pulling Bran 
uh, back from the brink. Um, kind of, you know, he was about, he had his physical fall and lost the loss of his limbs and then kind of dealing with the reality afterwards. It's very easy for him to fall yet again into de- uh, permanent despair. And here we have Tyrion, rather than pushing him uh, out a window, is here to kind of pull him back and be like, here, you can still you know, ride one day. And this goes back to what I was talking about, how Bran has this feeling of immobility, not just physically, but, um, you know, kind of socially. And Bran giving him a way to ride a horse kind of is a way to look past that immobility and kind of see a path forward. Well said, sir. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that motif of Rob Stark having the sword out is something that gets repeated in A Clash of Kings when Cleos Frey comes to River Run, where Rob is hanging out there. It's and Catelyn remarks that Rob was acting the part of the boy in A Clash of Kings, and it seems very much like Rob is doing the same thing here, except he doesn't have the mitigating influence of Catelyn Stark, his mother, there to be like, hey, don't be an idiot in these situations. This man comes as an emissary. Tyrion Lannister is coming as as a guest of Winterfell, and that you shouldn't have your sword out. And Tyrion is also coming as a friend. And one of the things that we should be aware of as readers is that we suspect that Tyrion, or perhaps we don't if we're re-readers, but for the first time readers is that we would suspect that Tyrion was behind the assassination attempt on Bran Stark. But Rob doesn't know that. Uh, he, there's no indication that a message has been passed from from King's Landing on up to Winterfell informing Rob that of of Ned and Catelyn's suspicions is brought in by Littlefinger. So I think that's important as an important point to keep in mind as we're, as we're thinking about this. Yeah. It's a really tense scene. Obviously you can, as Bran says, you can sense kind of the fear and anger in the room, even before the direwolves go nuts. But then you get this reversal where you have this unexpected gift and this, this easing of tensions, a re- kind of release of tension. And this is the, this, you know, this is the last good moment between Stark and Lannister, the last friendly moment they're going to have. Cause on the course, as Tyrion's trip continues south, Catelyn snatches him up at the crossroads and it all goes to hell from there. But you do get this, this little kind of melancholy moment of the, of a connection that could have been or a peace that could have been forged between these two relative outcasts of the family. I mean, Bran's not an outcast in the sense that his family's never been as cruel to him as Tyrion's family's been to him, but he's certainly feeling like an outcast and feeling abandoned right now. So it's, it fits Martin's themes and his romantic sensibility that this moment of connection comes between two of the least powerful and least shining, glorious, masculine image of these two families. They're the ones trying to forge this peace, and they're doing it on behalf of another outsider, John. You know, I was talking earlier about how the chapter opens with Bran feeling abandoned by his family, feeling detached from the direwolves, who are, of course, the symbol of Stark identity. But then you get this reaffirmation of family ties and Stark identity. Bran is sitting in his father's chair, you know, the, the chair of the Starks, the chair of Winterfell, and Tyrion is, is giving him this chance to, to get outside his room and be feel like the prince in the Stark and Winterfell again. And, you know, Bran, Bran's first word when he comes into the room is John. When he, he sees the Black Brothers and Tyrion's talking, he thinks about John. Connection between Bran and John and Tyrion is almost acting as a go-between for this kind of reaffirmation of the, the family brotherly bonds that we also see at the end of the chapter with Rob. Even as the Starks get more and more disparate, and of course this will continue over the story as Rob leaves and eventually Bran and Rickon leave Winterfell, you get a sense of the, the bonds keeping them together because even now they're already keeping them together from afar, even though Bran and John are separate. You know, their their bond has led John to ask Tyrion this favor, and Tyrion's relationship with John has led him to to carry it out. So it's kind of a refutation of Bran's pessimism. He he can't walk. A Blood Raven at least lied to him about being able to fly immediately, or or made a promise he wasn't able to immediately keep. But for the moment, he can ride. There is some form of mobility he can have, 
There is, and you know, you said we're talking about physical and social mobility. This is what allows him to get outside the castle, to interact with the winter town, and to to feel more like he's just not alone in his room. And uh, it's it's really it's it's kind of sweet, and you get the sense, of course, from Tyrion that he's doing it in part because he wishes more things like this had been done for him. Like he had to do a lot of this on his own, and he wants to wants to help out Bran as best he can, which is nice. You know, Tyrion Tyrion makes a lot of dark decisions as the series goes on, so it's it's nice to see this really generous moment for him when he really has nothing whatsoever to gain. Yeah, but then it's all immediately undercut by when the when the direwolves come in and ramp the tension right back up so you have the release yep. of the tension and then you come right back the gyros come and they're snapping and they're surrounding Tyrion and preparing to kill him and you're like oh my god is Tyrion about to die in this scene well I guess maybe as rereaders you don't think that but as first time readers you might think that you would be forgiven if you thought that we'll talk a little bit about that later about the gyros and why they attacked and, and things like that but it's definitely a, a point in the story where Martin ramps the tension back up and then allows for the tension to subside again with Bran being the first one to be like, hey, Summer, stop, don't do that. And then Rob following suit and then Rick on after that. I know we'll talk about the direwolves a little bit later, but we were talking about how the chapter opens with Bran having this feeling of FOMO with uh, the direwolves and Rick on playing in the yard and he can't be a part of them. Um, I don't think it's an accident that after this exchange with Tyrion, um, after Tyrion gives him a chance to, you know, kind of move forward, that Summer actually comes back with Bran to his room. That kind of separation <laughs> he was feeling initially when the chapter started, um, you kind of have that Tyrion exchange, and then all of a sudden, you know, Bran is back with his dire wolf, and he just feels a little more alive, a little closer with his wolf, and a little closer with his family. Um, and not for any action that anyone in his own household did, but by the kindness of a stranger. Yeah, well said, sir, again. And then, yes, as we've said a couple times, we get this uh, heartbreaking little scene with Rob, where after p- putting on Rob the Lord's face the entire chapter, he finally lets it drop when he's alone with Bran in the dark and speaks with hope. And, you know, kind of just childish intimacy and wanting his parents to come home and believing they're going to go right off and see John and surprise him. And he's trying to comfort Bran. And, and what really breaks Rob is when Bran calls it an adventure. And that's such a perfect a Song of Ice and Fire moment where you have this invocation of the dream, the song of summer and going off on adventures and how that's kind of fallen away and what they're left with. And that's what makes Rob cry because that's, of course, what Bran has lost and that's what Rob kind of feels he's lost as well as that innocence that youth that they were enjoying as recently as Bran's first chapter when it was just Bran and John racing away from the execution and you know that 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 kind of glee and joy in life seems to have faded away from them and that's that's what really leads Rob to cry and that that you know that association of adventure with losing your youth and innocence that's of course something that comes up strongly in Quentin's story where you have the opening of his storyline being Adventure Stink, referring to a ship called Adventure that stinks of, like, corpse flesh and all their, hor- all their horrible things, and this the sense of disillusionment and despair that is, is permeating these characters. But, of course, what makes Martin better than a lot of writers who kind of traffic in these themes is this fragile note of hope and love and connection of, of Bran and Rob holding hands in the, in the final words of the chapter, that this, you know, they have... They may be sad, they may be distraught, but they're going to look after each other and really heal each other. And once again, this is why Bran is ultimately a contrast to Euron, because this is something Euron, the kind of connection Euron gave up hope with a long time ago and has been working on abusing and terrorizing his brothers ever since, instead of finding meaning of life with them, instead of finding meaning of life destroying them. Yeah. The really sad thing, though, is Rob's words about, mother will be home soon, we can Mm. ride out and meet her. 
One of that surprise you see a horse, and then afterwards we'll ride north to see the wall. We won't even tell John we're coming. We'll just be there one day, you and me. It'll be an adventure. None of that happens. And Bran does ride out in his next chapter, but then that's immediately cut short when he encounters the wildlings and the Night's Watch deserters who are fleeing from the others and fleeing south of the wall. It's it's all undercut, and those things never happen, and so there's a sadness that's there that's even greater on reread because it's it's a sad moment in in the story because Bran won't be able to have these adventures and Rob as well. But the things that Rob promises aren't going to happen either. Catelyn Stark is never coming back to Winterfell. We'll never see Bran again. Bran does go north, but he doesn't see John when he goes north of the Wall. He bypasses Castle Black, and that's one of the things that Jojen suggests or tells Bran that they're that's what they're going to do. And it's it's sad. It's 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 sad in in a story sense in this chapter. And it's sad in a greater sense of the plot of A Song of Ice and Fire. We're all just sitting here being sad now. <laughs> three men alone with their feelings, staring off into the middle distance. Yeah, yeah. But I think that about takes us to our likes and dislikes of the chapter. So, what'd you guys like and dislike about this chapter? Emmett, you start us off. Sure. Well, I really, I really love Old Nan in general, and what I love about her, and specific to this scene, is that she's not remotely sweet or saccharine at all. <laughs> like, I get it. She's the tiny old lady who tells you stories and is always knitting by the fire. You'd think she'd be adorable, but she's not. Like, she's. I love that she. She's the one who, in the next book, after Bran has been made a prince, is the one that Bran says, "You never get any princes from her any more than he ever did." She's still saying, "Like there be dragons, boy," and stuff like that. <laughs> She's kind of cantankerous and almost uh, and and very blunt in a way that I really appreciate and I think is nice for that particular kind of character. Like uh, the phrase that I brought up earlier, I know a story about a boy who hated stories. That seems like one of many references in A Song of Ice and Fire to A Princess Bride, given that the kid in the framing device of the movie starts off hating stories and then his grandpa reads him a rousing adventure story and he gets really into it as he goes along and more and more invested. But the grandpa in that framing device is like this sweet old man who loves his grandson a lot too much. Like the grandson hates his displays of affection and how much the grandpa clearly loves him. Uh, old Nan is just is not like that to Bran at all. She's kind of teasing him and at the start when she's like saying, you know, crows are all liars. I know a story about a crow. I know a story about a boy who hated stories. She's not being sweet to him. She's trying to help him grow up. In terms of what she's trying to impart to Bran is really the same as the speech Ned gave Arya a couple chapters back about how you have to grow up and when the cold winds fall, we got to stick together as a pack. Old Nan's telling Bran the same thing. It's just she's being a lot more literal and mystical about what the cold winds are. You know, Ned was just talking about we have enemies here in King's Landing, you know, political enemies, yeah. the Lannisters. Old Nan is talking about the end of the world. But the lesson is the same, which is you got to stick together and try to rise above your own petty grievances. You know, Arya, for Arya, it was... You know, hating Sansa and, and uh, having this internal divide within House Stark. For Bran, it's getting lost in his own head, getting lost in despair, as Manu was saying, uh, and, and thinking of the stories as something he's passively enjoying instead of something to take part in. Old Anne is trying to, trying to shake him out of that, and I, I like that she's that instead of being, oh, you adorable puppet, and stuff like that. I mean, I, <laughs> I like those characters. I like the fairies and Sleeping Beauty as much as anybody, but... I think it. I think it's nice and fits old Nan. Uh, fits Martin's style that old Nan is not not here to be nice to you and not exactly sweet. I like that. Yeah. Something I uh, enjoy a little less about the chapter, and we've brought it up a couple times that we were going to get to it, is the wolf wolves growling at Tyrion scene. Hmm. It's paced nicely. It's executed well. It's genuinely tense, even though you, it doesn't seem like Tyrion's really going to die, but it gets close. It's tense. You know, it's it's an effective scene in in and of itself. The problem is. Uh, that it seems very portentous and like it's going to pay off somehow, and it really doesn't. 
It's easy to rationalize it as, oh, this was just abandoned foreshadowing for Tyrion's second Winterfell, which eventually is the role given to Theon Greyjoy in A Clash of Kings. And of course, Tyrion, you know, for all that he's nice to Bran here, ultimately does act as an enemy of House Stark once he's act in hand in Clash. But it's just, it, it struck, st- stuck out to me as weird on this reread because elsewhere in the story, Tyrion is being framed uh, for an attack on Bran. And while we don't know, of course, at this point, we haven't gotten the confirmation that he's innocent of it, it's weird that Martin is kind of nudging us in the direction of thinking he did it, while also having Tyrion give Bran the saddle, and then later, you know, having Catelyn think she's wrong about Littlefinger. It seems a little muddled, is what I'm saying, compared to a lot of other Martin structures in terms of how much information he gives us and how much he's holding back. At a couple of levels, this scene seems like a hint of something that's not going to happen, and it stands out just because it's so tense and seems so, like, underlined and written in neon by the author is, pay attention to this, this is important, this will pay off somehow for these characters, and it really doesn't. <laughs> so, coming back to that, that is kind of, for me, the one the one sore thumb in the chapter. Yeah, and I think you're right about it being muddled in that this scene looks to me to be... The scene prior to the wolves coming, apparently, it looks to me to be a way that Martin's saying, hey, Tyrion is not actually responsible for the attempt on Bran's life. And that gives us early foreshadowing that Littlefinger is lying and is spreading tales in order to advance his own interests, his own interests being chaos. But, yeah, the wolves attacking is just kind of a weird thing. And now there's the the good theory, and I think it's probably the correct one, that the wolves reflect the attitudes and the emotional states of the Starks. Martin has said that the each of the wolves, that each of the Starks are are wargs, and they can warg into their wolves, and they have a special connection with their wolves. So Grey Wind, Summer, and Shaggy Dog all attacking Tyrion works in that context, and that reflects the emotional state of the Starks. But yeah, I agree that it doesn't really have any payoff, or at least it doesn't hasn't had one yet, and I don't really see a way that it's going to have a payoff come come the the end game of, of Song of Ice and Fire. I can't imagine that the wolves snapping at Tyrion and Tyrion potentially being seen as an enemy is going to have anything to do with the with the end game of the story. So it does it, it does feel like an orphan plot line from the original pitch letter that just Martin wasn't really sure what to do with, but he really liked the scene, so he decided to include it in in a Game of Thrones brand four. What about you, our esteemed guest? What do you like and dislike about this chapter? All right, so um, I'm actually going to mention someone who's mentioned maybe all of three times and doesn't actually do anything in this chapter. (laughs) Um, But Theon Greyjoy kind of stuck out to me. Um, So I think a common theme, I think, among the fandom is the first time you read through A Song of Ice and Fire, you're very plot-oriented. So maybe some of the finer bits about characterization or some of the secondary characters who emerge later kind of miss you the first time through. And that's kind of how Theon Greyjoy was my first time through uh, the books, Um, especially the first book, uh, because he doesn't really do anything. And even his first couple chapters in Clash... um, I wasn't that invested in the Ironborn. I wanted to get back to Arya and John and Danny. Um, so until he really sacked Winterfell, I wasn't really on board with Theon's character or really just paying attention to him. And then he kind of goes, um, you know, off book for two books, you know, with a couple mentions here or there. He has as many mentions and he as he has fingers by the end of Dance. Um, but <laughs> uh, basically, he's just kind of the forgotten character. And I think that's part of why... Um, when he does return in A Dance with Dragons is why people love and rally around his arc is because he's almost this uh, afterthought for a while and then he kind of rips back into the narrative you know the entire northern 
plot in A Dance with Dragons is some of the best work uh, Martin has done, uh, all parts of the theater, but I think the and Reach chapter specifically. Um, so coming back to this chapter, what I really appreciated is um, we've talked a couple times already how we don't know where George was in terms of who was going to sack Winterfell at this time, whether it was uh, still Tyrion as he imagined or if it would be Theon as would eventually uh, occur. But George does have Theon's character right, which is what makes it so much more believable later on. He is this man of easy smiles. Um, I think he's described as someone who's always laughing at a joke that only he's in on. And just yes. the way he reacts in this chapter to Bran talking about the children of the forest or Tyrion's like, well, then I'm not a dwarf. My father will be so happy. It's just you kind <laughs> of see um, the shittiness, but also the con- you know, we talk about the end as a conflicted character, as you know, mix of Stark, mix of Greyjoy, but really neither at this point, um, because he really hasn't had to force himself to discover who he is, because he's kind of lived a weird situation where he's a prisoner, but also comes with privilege of being a highborn prisoner and being treated well um, by uh, his captor, so to speak. So um, there's really not much else to it, because like I said, Theon's mentioned I think four times in this chapter, and twice it's just Theon sniggered. But I just love the fact that his character is so clearly defined in George's mind here that everything that comes of him and, you know, theoretically, there's like a decade plus separating uh, George writing this chapter versus the uh, Reek chapters in A Dance with Dragons. But the fact that this all makes sense and is one of the more coherent story arcs, despite us knowing now that Theon's fate might not have been what it was uh, as initially planned. So um, just kudos to George on really just nailing that character down. Yeah, there's it's it's funny. And this is actually applies directly to to your excellent podcast. There's an added scene in the show where right after this meeting, Tyrion walks out of the Winterfell Great Hall and he hangs out with Theon for a hot moment, right? And I remember really liking the scene and I remember him flipping him, Tyrion flipping him a coin, but I don't remember the exact context of what they talked about. Do you remember what they were talking about there? Yeah, so, because, uh, you know, Theon says, like, you know, I'll go find a brothel and, you know, maybe a wench to keep my bed warm is what he says in this chapter. Um, what happens is Tyrion, or Theon meets him outside and says, well, if you're looking for a good time, you know, Roz is someone I uh, hang out with, I guess. <laughs> and um, th- this is kind of where... Um, the show, this is where the show is, has Tyrion notice, say, where's Catelyn Stark? And they give us some backstory about uh, Euron and Victorian here about um, his uncle's burning Lannisport, which sticks out, especially rewatching now, considering they didn't even adapt uh, Victorian and Euron's a wholly different character, so, you know, more or less compared to his book version. But it seemed like they were trying to see that there. But again, I mean, that's, you know, speaking to uh, Theon as being kind of a shitty person but you know trying to be friendly like oh Tyrion did something nice for House Stark I'm gonna do something nice by recommending a sex worker for him um because that's what uh (laughs) that's how Theon thinks um there's a added scene later in uh season one where uh Rob calls the banners and uh Theon you know asks Rob are you scared and uh Rob you know has his hand shaking and he's like I must be and Theon's like good that means you're not stupid and when i when we talked about that scene it's like this is the shittiest interpretation of uh when a man's uh scared is the only time he can be brave it's like he took that ned stark lesson but he applied it through the 
uh, Theon Greyjoy filter or just the Greyjoy filter more <laughs> broadly of let's take this lesson, but let's kind of bastardize it into, you know, maybe something that's a little more toxic. It still has the right sentiment, but it's just not framed as eloquently or as sympathetically. But um, that's kind of digressing at this point. But I just that love that they got Theon's character so right. And I'm, a lot of that's Alfie Allen's performance in the show. Um, but it wouldn't be as compelling if George didn't, you know, write this character as well as he did from the get go. Yeah, that's a very good point. I guess uh, going into my dislikes, and I'm going to uh, preface this, that this is like the mildest of dislikes. I just know that I'm on a podcast where hashtag objective is very important. (laughs) So I felt like I had to bring at least one dislike to this uh, chapter. And I'm going to just say um, it's... I don't dislike the old man story. In fact, I love it. And on multiple rereads, I love it more and more because, like you say, um, this is where the bulk of what we know about the others comes from. That said, um, reading it on my iPad, it definitely sticks out as this is one giant paragraph where we're learning very, very important stuff. And it just it's unbroken it's just one long story and the first time through you don't really know the significance of it i think on the rereads it helps knowing that okay this is brand's journey this is sam's journey um and you know all that it entails from there but at the, it just it just stuck out as just one big block of text um i think they do a nice job of building to it in the chapter as we've talked about already and i think in the context of a children's story it actually works again the princess diaries framing so it has a lot of things to kind of you know, mitigate any kind of heavy handedness of um, just having one character explain the entire, perhaps, you know, climax of the story to another character. But um, like I said, it's a mild criticism. And I think, you know, on rereads, it holds up, you know, probably better than it does the first time through. I think that's I think that's fair. It's it's not the most organic way of of introducing this information. It is just straight up. Martin stops the story dead and has story time. I think you could say it's a little more eloquently done with, like, the Night of the Laughing Tree, where Bran's asking for the story, and Mira's kind of hesitant at first, and Jojen keeps interrupting to say, wait, you haven't heard this before? Why haven't you heard this before? Like, that's a little more conversational. This is very much info dump mode. So it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel as elegant necessarily as it could have. I think that's perfectly fair. Yeah, I think some of it's structural, too. As you mentioned, the Reeds and Osha, those are characters that later on can help fill in some of the story. So you can have Old Nan say this or Bran say, oh, Old Nan told me the story. And then you could have one of those other characters finish that story off or even someone like Rob, who would have theoretically heard the same stories. Um, I think right now where we are in the story, um, necessarily Old Nan's the only one who can tell this information because she's the only one who has it, um, aside from, you know, potentially Rob. But Rob's busy Rob's busy being Rob the Lord right now, so the fact that he can't finish Old Nan's story should not surprise anyone. Very yeah. true. But I would love to hear the end of that story because we only get that moment later on where... Bran exclaims, the children will save him. The children of the forest. And you know, like, well, how how do they save him? What would they do? Come on, just give me something. Just come on. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. My, my life for this this chapter is a little bit of a slightly different take than a, our wonderful esteemed guest Manu had. And that is to talk a little bit about some of the narrative flow, because I think Martin doesn't nearly get enough credit for writing really good organic transitions and how they flow from the conversation and internal monologue. You know, I, I love stuff like the quote of the stories are before me and after me, before you too. And that leads to Brand giving us the old Dan backstory or the 
I could tell you the story of Brandon the Builder leads to Brand's rote recitation. You can almost hear Brand being like, oh, yeah, Brand the Builder. He built Winterfell. Then he built the wall. Then he built Storm's End, blah, 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 blah. But us, us as readers, we're like fascinated by this stuff. But then even stuff like how Yorin's musing that good men have gone into the woods and never come out. This leads to Bran blurting out the end of Dan's stories about how the children of the forest will save Bran or will save Benjen. And then finally, I love how the chapter ends sad about how mom and dad aren't home. And that's fed by Bran's earlier thoughts of him wanting his mom and dad back in Winterfell. So it, I, I, I totally agree that the it, it does kind of seem like. Okay, here's the story of the Long Night. Here's Bran the Builder. Here's the story of Old Nan. Kind of, it's it's info dumping, but I do like the way that Martin transitions to them, and then he always is reaching back into the chapter itself in order to create these emotional moments or to create these exclamations of, well, the children of the forest, that's who saved the last hero. And you're like, ah, that would make sense because that's how people think. It's always something that triggers a response mechanism in human beings that they remember something and in this case you know the I, I love the example of Yorn's saying that Benjen's gone missing and people go missing in the woods all the time and they don't come back and Bran being like oh this, the children of the forest will save him because that seems like an organic way that people think and an organic way to tell the story Amen brother Alright excellent and uh, dislikes I, I really don't have anything to add to think that's you guys have said enough. Um, I guess there's no Stannis in this chapter. He's not proclaimed the <laughs> one true king. I don't know. That's kind of kind of weird. That's a, that's a problem with a great many chapters in the series. I hate, <laughs> I hate a great many things, but I suffer them all the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, going into our foreshadowing groundwork piece of the podcast, to kind of keep in the same great note that Manu left us off in his like, let's talk a little, a little bit more about Theon Greyjoy. So if we recall that Theon was not originally supposed to be a point of view character, and if you recall that from our last episode about Danny, that Davos was the first new point of view that George R. R. Martin envisioned, there's a bit of retcon foreshadowing present when Bran says, Theon Greyjoy had once commented that Hodor did not know much, but no one could doubt that he knew his name. Oh boy, Theon remembering his name is, a, if not... The most prominent is one of the most prominent features in Theon's A Dance of Dragons arc as someone we all know and love has and is writing at great length. Who could that possibly be? Yeah, so I'm writing a, a long-suffering essay series on Theon and Dance. Part of a lot of essays I've been writing about different arcs in A Dance with Dragons for a couple of years. I've dealt with his first two chapters. I'm doing, I'm, I'm moving soon, so I'm dealing with uh, stuff in that in my personal life. So it's, it's tabled for the moment, but as soon as that's settled, I will be uh, getting out the essay on Theon's third chapter, the one set in Barrowton soon. So thank you for the plug, my dear friend. Always nice to what have you at my called? back. Oh, the essays oh. are uh, the essay series is called "Remember Your Name," specifically regarding <laughs> Theon's chapters in A Dance with Dragons. So perfectly relevant to that quote. And yeah, nice catch on that, sir. I had not noticed that before, but that is yeah becomes the dominant theme on in Theon's chapters. Really in Clash, but even more so in Dance. So yes. it's, it's, it's perfect that he, of all people, would be commenting on someone else remembering his name when he's going to be working so hard to do it himself. Absolutely. Yeah, I uh, noticed the line on my last reread, and I got a good chuckle out of it, but that wasn't even noting the irony of Theon's fate to come. I just thought it's a, pre it's a pretty good uh, joke about Hodor. As to whether <laughs> uh, George really knew where he was going with Theon, 
Um, again, not sure, but I think something that has uh, kind of played out is that George has very much put the uh, theme of identity and knowing your name as being critical to a lot of characters, not just Theon, yes. but we see it with Sansa and Arya. Um, and, you know, even in things like with Danny and Rob in terms of them being the lords and the king versus the brother or the, you know, what have you. So the theme of multiple identities or being someone else is something that has reared its head enough in A Song of Ice and Fire that I want to give George the benefit of the doubt that he at least knew he was going to be doing something with Theon along the lines of who he is. And I think that's very clear just by the fact that he's the ward of Winterfell, yet he's a Greyjoy. Like, he already had this kind of dissociative aspect to his identity in terms of this society. So I think this is very much just hinting at, hey, there's more to come with this character. Please stay tuned. Yeah, and I just, I I love the... Denouement from Asha's final chapter in A Dance of Dragons from the Sacrifice, where Asha witnesses Theon and finally realizes who it is. And she's like, Theon? And he's like, Theon, my name is Theon. You have to remember your name. Like, that's just so good. I, I love it. It's, I love it so much. If I could, you know, gush about it even more. But but the, we will get to plenty of Theon come a Clash of Kings and definitely in A Dance of Dragons. We get there in a few years. Very true. Uh, and also in terms of foreshadowing and groundwork in this chapter, obviously the mother load is Old Nan's story. And there's a, there's a number of questions, a number of angles and ways to get out this story. Yes. Yeah, so I guess I kind of wrote some of these questions down, so I'll just start firing them off. Um, I guess the first one is, how many times do we think the White Walkers have come? Basically... They're framed as a long night from ages ago. Um, We know there's a long night pending um, in the current story arc. But, you know, we're told to believe that the White Walkers have been sleeping all this time. And, you know, have they made any attempts or feints at the wall or heading south before? Um, We have the story of the Night King, um, the book version where, you know, the Lord Commander, or not the Lord Commander, but rather, or was he Lord Commander? I can't remember. But whoever was holding the Night Fort consorted with... Uh, what is believed to be an other and, you know, the dark rain that came and the king beyond the wall and the king in the north had to put him down at the time. Um, or maybe it was just the Stark at Winterfell. But regardless, um, what do you guys think? Has How many times have the others made some kind of attempt to march south or cover the lands in whatever uh, snow and ice and all that? I think once in Westeros and maybe once in Essos. And the only reason why we think that they might have come to Essos is we get the stories from the World of Ice and Fire, which came out in 2014, which indicated that there's a place called the Five Forts, which are located in north central Essos and are there. And no one knows why they're there or who mans them, because, of course, this is written from a Westerosi perspective. So my suspicion is that they came once to Westeros, maybe concurrently they came south on Essos as well, and the Essos built those five those five forts in order to prevent them from ever coming back onto Essos again. But I, I would say once. So I don't know. What do you think, Emmett? It's tough to say. I mean, there's a certain Wheel of Time appeal to the fantasy genre, including, of course, the series called Wheel of Time. Where, you know, things that have happened before will happen again to steal from Battlestar Galactica. So I could see the appeal of it being kind of an infinite cycle where it's actually happened a bunch of times, but it's happened over so long a period of time we only know about the recent one. I, that, that fits the genre to a certain degree. Uh, but the very fact that it seems like with Night's King, the others were trying to bring it about again, but didn't quite pull it off, makes me think that 
this doesn't just happen every 8,000 years on the dot. That's There has to be a certain amount of... There are criteria to be met. There have to be things in place, and it, you can fail at making it happen, which makes me think it's rarer than just a, a cyclical occurrence, and that we're only dealing with the two, and that maybe other times people like the Others or the Bloodstone Emperor or whoever else have attempted to bring out the Apocalypse and failed. So I, if, <laughs> if I had to come down on one side, I would lean toward it's only successfully happened once. There have been other attempts, but we're going to be seeing the second successful attempt over the course of the series. Interesting. And kind of a follow-up to that is, what do we think happened the first time? And clearly that's the part of Old Man's story that gets cut off at the end, but were the White Walkers defeated? They clearly weren't permanently defeated because they're coming back now. And what does that mean for the end of A Song of Ice and Fire? Are we going to see... Um, I know you rejected the fact that it's a cyclical thing, but are we going to see them just put down again for them to reemerge much later? I doubt it. Um, I tend to think there'll be a little more finality to it because I just don't think George is telling us that kind of story. But um, I think there's a good question to what actually happened the first time. Or were they actually defeated or were they just, you know, kind of kick the can down the road in some magical fashion? That's a very good question. I mean, my th- my thoughts, if I had to guess, are that the way they were beaten last time involved some sort of horrible atrocity, you know, child sacrifice, kin slaying, some something that violates the rules of the gods and would, you know, uh, royal our sensibilities as readers, and that Martin might be leading us to a conclusion of the heroes figuring out some other less horrific way to defeat the others, and that's what gets it done permanently, with the message being that, you know, this the blood sacrifice way, the kin slaying way, only buys you reprieve, and if you really really want to deal with the problem, you have to do something less horrifying. If, if, if I had to guess, that's what the lesson Martin is leading us to. That doesn't obviously get into the specific metaphysics of how the others were defeated. Obviously, someone like LML would probably could get, get into the weeds <laughs> of stuff like that. But yeah, that, that would be my guess, especially given the possibility of Jojen Paste, given the aura of kind of horror and apocalypse around Stannis and Shireen, and the Azor High story which he may or may not be the last hero. I, I, I th- that, that is my guess, is that what Old Nan didn't tell is that the children demanded some horrifying price of the last hero in exchange for sealing the others away semi-permanently, and that yeah. we're going to see in the current storyline, we're going to see Bran and John and Danny uh, reject that in some fashion and try to come up with a better way of defeating the others. That's my guess. Yeah. And and I would also say there's the theory that's kind of bounced around that there is some sort of pact between the men, the first men and the children of the forest and the others. And we did talk about this, I believe, in our prologue, our very first episode. And that I, I don't think that there's a a way that you could negotiate with the Black Death, with the White Walkers. I think the story that Old Nan tells is one where there's no negotiation with them. There, well, let me t- let me walk that back. There is a small amount of negotiation you could do, is provided that you are giving the White Walkers male children in order to transform into others. But it's only delaying the inevitable. It's not permanently keeping peace between the two sides, because we see that in the form of Craster, as we're going to see in A Clash of Kings, and as we see in season two of Game of Thrones. I, I would agree. I think with Emmett, and I think it's a hard question about why why they didn't totally get defeated the first time. I, I trust that Martin, when he says stuff like, we'll go farther north in the Winds of Winter than we've ever gone before, 
that there'll be something we'll see in some of Bran's visions because he does it by the end of A Dance of Dragons, he's starting to see backwards into time. So he didn't make it as far back as the long night, as far as we can tell. But I think at some point he's going to see the long night. So we're going to get a taste of that before it actually falls on Westeros. And I think we'll be able to see exactly what happened and transpired to end the long night the first time and why the others weren't permanently defeated. Yeah, I agree. I think the Craster model is, I think, the way you make a deal with the others, but I definitely get the sense from the series that we're not supposed to consider that a worthy deal or a model that we're supposed to follow. I think it's presented as horrifying and also presented as, like, the others are not exactly, like, going, well, that's that. We're just keeping the peace. Like, they're clearly preying on Craster more and more. They're wandering around in every area outside his sheepfold. I imagine at the end of the day, if he refused to keep the deal going, they would just break in and take what they want. I don't think it's, this is not like, you know, a cherished peace between equal partners. That was, it's, to, to borrow from Rogue One, that would be confusing peace with terror. I think ultimately that's what you're seeing with Craster. If, if that's the pact, I don't think we're supposed to want humanity to keep. And that's really where I disagree with some people about the others. It's not that I think there aren't mysteries to be un, unfolded about where the others come from and why they exist. Of course there are, and I'm sure they do involve the children to some extent, given that they're both located in the far north and they're both fantasy creatures that only stands to reason. But I, I don't agree with the notion that, like, humanity broke the pact and that's a bad thing and that the others are just responding to it and at the end we're just going to feel bad about that. Because that's, that's kind of a commonplace right. theory about where the series is heading. I lean more towards the heroes rejecting that notion of we just have to keep feeding the others with children and everything will be fine. I think a lot of the themes of the story lead to the heroes rejecting that. So I, I look yeah. forward to that. One hopes. Agreed. Amen, brothers. Oh, yeah, take a shot, everybody. He one. said the thing. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think, I mean, those are as good as answers as we can get. I mean, they're purposely, we don't have the all the tools necessary to answer those questions. Um, it's just fun to think that all of these questions were posed, you know, very early on. And, you know, yeah. two decades later and many books later, we're still kind of awaiting on some of these very pivotal and probably they'll be revealed, you know, in or near the climax of the series overall. But um, I just love that we have these questions right away to kind of sit in the back of our minds as we read through five to seven to eight more books. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Exactly. All right, this was some more questions. We're ready. We're ready for more questions. All right. So another question I had, and this is kind of minor, but we learned that Hodor's name is Walder, um, which is a little bit different than what the uh, show ended up showing us, which I believe was Willis in uh, season mm-hmm. six. Um, yep. And part of me thinks it might be similar to what they did with the three-eyed raven, the three-eyed crow, where they kind of divorce them so they can kind of treat them separately. Because while I think we all agree that some version of the hold the door scene will happen, uh, whether it happens exactly in that context, you know, might differ between the show and the books. But forgetting all the show stuff that I just mentioned, do you think there's any <laughs> significance to the fact that uh, Hodor's name is Walder? Or any significance of the fact that it was changed in the adaptation? I agree with you about the adaptational change. I think it was more just to establish it as their own thing and separate it. Uh, so maybe to make it less confusing. As far as the significance of his name being Walder, I don't know. Walder seems like it's, you know, it's been presented as like the most average name possible. Not, I mean, Pate, <laughs> I guess, is the most average name possible in the Soft universe. But like the fact that so many Freys are named Walder and we've seen other people named Walder, it's almost like a default name which are just a very commonplace name. So that that fits a character who is known by another name, that he would have this very commonplace, forgettable name. Like, there's so many Walders. It's not distinctive. So, yeah. of, cor- of course, he's known by something else. That's kind of what I got out of it. 
like this human is kind of very unremarkable and insignificant to the fate of humanity until he becomes Hodor. And before that, he has the most generic name possible kind of thing. Exact. That's it's exactly right. That's a great point. That's uh, I think that might be what Martin's going for. Yeah, and I would only add on to that in that the show has done a few name changes and they've done name changes with names that sound similar or are people are named the same way. You have Sweet Robin, who is Robert Aaron in the books. His nickname is Sweet Robin, and apparently his name was changed to Robin Aaron, R-O-B-I-N, in, uh, in Game of Thrones. You also have... Asha Greyjoy's name being changed to Yara Greyjoy because the name of Asha and Osha sound too similar. Um, this seems to be the reason why they made those changes. So I, I also wonder, too, whether the name mm. was changed to Willis because you have Walter Frey there. So if you have two Walters, maybe they thought it would be confusing. I, I'm not sure. Sometimes when you look back at these decisions, you're like, I, I can see where you're going, why, why you're making these changes. But at the same time, I think you also have to trust your audience, too, that they would know that Osha and Asha are different people or that Walter and, and Walter, Walter Frey and Walter, who becomes Hodor, are different or that Robert Aaron is a completely different character to Robert Baratheon and that commonalities and names is something that exists in the present day and also existed in medieval times, for sure, especially when you have... Edward the first, Edward the second, Edward the third, Edward the fourth, on down, and all the n- numerous Henrys as well who are English kings, and all the Louis who are who are French kings too. Yeah, or sure that not. you can trust the audience to remember that Catelyn Stark name was Cat, and then you don't have to refer to her as only your sister or whatever they ended yeah, up going through. Right. I, I think yeah. that is one of the legit criti- le- legit criticisms is that I think at times they kind of don't trust their audience to do the work and. Uh, or not do the work, but just to know their shit. I think everyone who kind of loves Game of Thrones is really obsessed with it and know with it. Um, yes. One of the criticisms I had of the show, and sorry, we're digressing here, is that no. um, I think David and Dan sometimes internalize some of the criticism that the that's lobbed at the show. Um, and very early on in the first couple seasons, there was the complaints that there are too many characters with too many names to remember or that there's just too many scenes of people traveling from place to place, wandering the Riverlands, and um, it doesn't seem like they're going anywhere. And I think in the later seasons, they may have po- possibly overcorrected for that a bit. Um, you've kind of mentioned all the ways they've simplified the names, the dialogue, yeah. um, and then also just kind of cut, cutting out a lot of that travel log uh, storytelling and more just getting characters from place to place. So I, I just think that's a factor of just internalizing some of the early season criticisms, but um, kind of neither here or there re- related to this chapter. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely true. All right. So hit the children, GF. That's a, that's a terrible right. sentence out of context. Hit those children. <laughs> Jeff. We're going to keep that in the, in the final edit. Hit the children, exactly. please. Hit the you children, better. <laughs> um, yeah, no, those are all great points about Game of Thrones, and I think they do overcorrect at times. Um, one of the things in that does get featured in Game of Thrones, and is also we see at the end of A Dance of Dragons, are the children of the forest, and we find out that they're alive north of the wall, which is something that gets talked about in this chapter, it gets mentioned in Foreshadow, where Maester Lewin says, Bran, the children of the forest have been dead and gone for thousands of years. All that is left of them are the faces in the trees. And then Yorin replies, Down here might be that's true, Maester. But up past the wall, who's to say? Up there, a man can't always tell what's alive and what's dead. So you you get the idea that the children of the forest are potentially alive. And that seems to be a very big clue that they are, are alive and are going to show up in the future. And of course, the funny thing is, is that we don't find this out if you're reading the books in 1996 for 15 years. And that's interesting. But you also get the... The also the thing too, which reinforces the theme from the prologue that what's alive and what's dead is not 
you can't always tell because, of course, Waymore Royce rises from the dead at the end of the prologue and strangles Will. And then you get later on, you get Jafer Flowers and the other Night's Watchmen who come back dead and who rise south of the wall. But then you also have some more stuff about the children, too. And we did talk about this when we had our discussion about the fate of Benjamin Stark. But Bran Stark has this whole thing where he says, All Bran could think of was old Nan's stories of the others and the last hero, howled through the white woods by dead men and spiders as big as hounds. He was afraid for a moment until he remembered how the story ended. The children will help him, he blurted. The children of the forest. And the context of that quote is that Bran is that Yorn is saying, well, you know, Benjamin Stark is north of the wall and good men who go north of the wall don't always come back. And Bran, and Bran is saying, well, the children of the forest will help him. Is that foreshadowing that Benjamin Stark will be saved by the children of the forest? Possibly. It seems like that was the case in season six of Game of Thrones, that Benjamin Stark coming to save Bran. He saves Bran. And I think, and Manu, you can, you're, you're the better expert than I am on this one, but that he says that the children of the forest saved him and the three-eyed raven eventually rose him from the dead as well, correct? Yeah. Or am I wrong? Yeah, I think uh, he, kind of similar to the creation of the White Walker, I think they said they shoved a dragon glass uh, shard into his heart, which I'm not guessing the book is going to do. But regardless, I think <laughs> it kind of made for effective shorthand once they established it in the show that this is something that invokes some kind of magical properties um, and that's kind of how he was able to stave off whatever wounds he had. And then the three-eyed raven kind of gave him purpose in terms of um, they're kind of very vague on it. It's just like he's going to keep fighting until he can't fight any longer. But um, he doesn't really give any detail. But I think you have the general chronology right on that. OK, that's good. That's good stuff. And indeed. So you see that the the last hero storyline, that archetype is being compared by Bran to Benjen's story. And he's indicating that Benjen is going to be following that same pattern. And you can see that Martin is interested in the idea that, as far as, once again, cyclical history goes and history repeating itself, that the last hero storyline is happening again in the present day. That these these features of the hero going out on a quest into the wasteland and being hunted by the others and losing their companions one by one and their survival hinging on whether this metaphysical intercession is going to happen or not, that's something we see in A Song of Ice and Fire itself, not just in the backstory. Obviously, it happens to Bran, even though none of his companions die before reaching the children, which might be an interesting twist on the story, that in Bran's case, the companions die when they think they're safe instead of on the way. <laughs> but he still has that same archetype of going out into, into the wild to find the children for their help, and the, the uh, intercession by magic happens when a, a Cold Hands escorts them and uh, saves them at the, the White Cave, and the children save them there as well. We see another version of it, a very kind of vivid and unshakable version of it with Sam and a Storm of Swords during the Night's Watch retreat from the Fist towards the Wall. Same situation, being hunted by the others uh, through the woods, as Sam says, they're still behind us, they're taking us one by one. <laughs> the same sense of this large group being whittled down to a few, and then just a couple where it's just Sam and Gilly and the baby on the run. And then they too are, are, are saved by Cold Hands, who have, uh, has been sent by Blood Raven and the children, so it's a, a similar structure as the last hero story. And Sam proves himself a hero as he thought he could not be, possibly be by slaying a dra uh, not slaying a dragon, something else entirely, slaying another. <laughs> Ice, not fire. So that's obviously kind of the, those are the big versions of the last hero story in the Song of Ice and Fire, but we see smaller versions of it in A Dance with Dragons. Martin seems kind of especially obsessed with the last hero archetype. We have not only Bran, but also Varamir Sixkins goes through a version of it where he's staggering into the wild with his last few companions after Stannis defeats Mance at the Wall. 
and then eventually he's just down to himself and his the the kind of metaphysical interruption comes from him at that point when he's trying to seize thistle to save his life so it's like a, a villainous <laughs> version of the last hero story you could say and quentin i would argue also goes through kind of a version of this where he's on a quest to uh kind of it's the fire version of the last hero quest instead of ice that he's going into a uh, kind of a fire-ridden landscape to find a dragon. He's losing his companions one by one. And in his case, it's it's a last story of the last hero where it fails and the children don't come to save him and where he's kind of just left to die. So it's you can see Martin working through kind of versions of this story uh, throughout the series. And it all starts here with the, the, the archetypal version of it, the original version of it, and then Martin is, is doing his present-day versions of it throughout the rest of the series. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't got much to add. I just love the nomenclature of the last hero. I think that just kind of mm-hmm. reinforces that this is the only battle worth fighting in the end is the one against yes. this existential threat, the others. So I just love that they call it the last hero, even though, you know, it's been thousands of years ago and there's so many songs and stories of other heroes. But ultimately, the one that matters is the one that brings the dawn, so to speak. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, of course, you have Hodor walking in. This is Hodor's introduction. He's been mentioned before but never seen. And he walks in right at that moment uh, where Old Nan is about to talk about the, the hero cutting a deal with the children of the forest, which I think is interesting given that if something like Hold the Door holds true, Hodor is very much implicated in that part of Brant's story. And it's, it's almost as if Hodor is the answer to the question Old Nan is posing. What happened next? Well, someone like Hodor happened. Someone like Hodor had to be used or sacrificed by the, by the last hero as part of his process. Again, I think something like that probably did occur with the last hero, and this is Bran's version of it. So again, might be sneaky little foreshadowing from Martin on what, what Hodor's role in all this is going to be. This just struck me right now. Is it fascinating to you guys that Hodor's introduction is him throwing open a door? Like that's when and then he enters through the door. If, if you think about it, if, if this, since hold the door is something that is confirmed is going to happen, that's how Hodor is introduced to us, is the reader is coming through the door, throwing open the door, and the door opening with a bang. I don't know, it just kind of struck me right there. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I don't mean to get uh, ahead of you, you guys too far, but uh, maybe I can pull an LML and request that you guys have me on for the last Bran chapter in A Clash of Kings. Uh, but in that chapter where Bran's third eye is opened, um, we also have them trying to escape the Winterfell crypts. And rereading that passage, it's Hodor putting his back to the door and just screaming, Hodor, 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 as he like pushes with all his might to open the door. <laughs> and if you read the description, it's almost... You could see it being the stage direction for uh, Christian Yern uh, for that episode of Game of Thrones. So um, it's definitely something that sticks out after watching that episode um, that Hodor passes through a number of doors in his time. And very often there's some kind of comment or note about it from Martin along those lines. That's awesome. Yep, that's solid foreshadowing right there. And then kind of taking it, walking it back a little bit from the uh, last hero and the end times of the series potentially. There is some foreshadowing for the end times of A Game of Thrones, which is that everyone is going to fucking die in King's Landing. We get this line from Bran's internal monologue where he's thinking, or where he's being told, there's many a mile and many a hawk between here and King's Landing. The message may not have reached them. And that is a message that Maester Lewin sent down to Ned uh, down in King's Landing. But then Bran continues, yet to Bran it felt as if they had all died while he had slept. Or perhaps Bran had died and they had forgotten him. Jory and Sir Roderick and Van Poole had gone too, and Hullen and Harwin and Fat Tom and a quarter of the guard. Well, that kind of reads very strongly as foreshadowing for that everyone is going to die down in King's Landing. Um, in fact, we were talking about this in pre-production. The only person among the list, Jory, Roderick, Van, 
and Hullen, Fahullen, Harwin, and Fat Tom that's alive is Harwin. Harwin's the, la- is the sole survivor among the crew there. Of course, not all of them die in King's Landing. Uh, as we know, um, Sir Roger Cassell dies outside of Winterfell when he by by Bolton treachery. And um, but yeah, everyone else is going to die there. But it's uh, it's interesting too because you know I'll, I'll let Manu take the reins on this one too. There's an interesting connection between this line and the final lines from Clash of Kings, Brand Six, Manu's favorite chapter. The stone is strong, Bran told himself. The roots of the trees go deep, and under the ground the kings of winter sit their thrones. So long as those remained, Winterfell remained. It was not dead, just broken. Like me, he thought, I'm not dead either. Yeah, so Bran thinks that he felt that he had potentially died in this chapter from the Game of Thrones, Bran 4, because they've all gone since he fell into the coma, but... It's great at the end of his chapter and his, his final chapter in A Clash of Kings that he's like, I'm not dead. He finally comes to that realization. It gives him kind of a will to live. And it's a, it's a hauntingly sad moment in the series, but it also is bittersweet in that it has it's also hopeful, too, because that also then leads into A Storm of Swords, where Jojen tells Bran that the, the wolves will come again. And how do you know this boy? Well, I dreamed it. And I think that's a cool way of looking at that there's always hope even in the worst darkness in this series and i think that's that's what makes this series great it's not just grim dark awful fiction there's the darkness is intermixed with the light and i think it's it's good yeah bran has fallen but he will rise again and he will fly which uh ties nicely into our uh, theory section for the episode which we're gonna oh, yeah uh, largely turn over to our esteemed guest because he's got a uh, one of my favorite theories in the song of ice and fire community which is perfectly relevant for this chapter here yes and to kind of read you into your excellent theory manu i went back into the archives from the nada blog which is george's infamous or famous depending on your perspective his blog where he writes about everything like the nfl football wild cards, convention appearances, and once in a while mentions a song of ice and fire, but uh, he had made an appearance in this game called second life back in 2007. And he wrote this. Well, I made my appearance on sheep Island a few hours ago, cleverly disguised as Tyrion the imp for a reading and Q and a session at Bantam's virtual bookhouse bookstore in second life. Only this version of Tyrion could fly. Ah, if only Tyrion, the books could fly. What mischief he will, uh, could, uh, never mind. So, <laughs> Martin seems to be hinting that Tyrion may fly at some point, and one of the ways he might fly is via dragon riding. Yeah, so um, we're going to get into what um, I tentatively am calling the Wargarian theory, even though um, <laughs> that's actually very much a mis- misnomer because it actually rejects the Tyrion is a Targaryen theory. Um, so basically what my theory... Uh, purports to answer is who will be the third dragon rider i think for the most part people assume john and daenerys will be two of the three dragon riders um although i will point out that my theory does not need them to be dragon riders necessarily for it to be true um basically um the underpinning of this theory is that in the much the same way that Tyrion designed the saddle for bran so that he could ride again um i think bran um, by virtue of his skin changing, will be able to uh, rein in one of the dragons just long enough for Tyrion to uh, 
ride a dragon himself uh, more on his moxie and his wits and his learning as opposed to any kind of divine or blood right to dragon riding so <laughs> so yeah so uh, diving into this theory and again this is something that's kind of based on um, my feelings which is always great for uh, analytical work um, some meta analysis and some deductive <laughs> reasoning therefrom um, so why Bran and Tyrion um Perhaps more than anything, um, I think we're all familiar with the concept of George's children. I think the characters that are most near and dear to him, um, that's essentially our point of views in A Game of Thrones. I think um, the concept of his children expanded a bit um, because I don't think Sansa was in there initially, but I'm assuming he has strong feelings about her now. Um, Theon, Samwell, Jamie, all of them. I mean, they're all kind of George's children. But anyways, um, we knew that Bran, Arya, John. Uh, Daenerys and Tyrion were kind of the characters that would be pivotal um, in the end game of Game of Thrones. So this is a way to get Bran and Tyrion a role, whereas um, I think uh, John and Daenerys are a little more clear cut in terms of the end game. I think where Bran and Tyrion fit in is a little more murky or there's more information we need to get. Um, so starting from there, um, we're just kind of building off of Bran's imagery as someone who's able to fly. Um, that's what the three-eyed crow tells him when he first meets him. is like, you'll never walk again, but you will fly. Um, I believe Jojen refers to him as the winged wolf. Um, that's why he goes to Winterfell in the first place to uh, assist Bran. Um, and George could easily leave Brad's, uh, Bran's concept of flight to what he experiences in his dreams um, or you know what he experiences by skin-changing birds. But really, if you're talking about apex you know, skin changing or apex flying, um, that would be in the version of a dragon, um, which is kind of like the dominant beast and like the most, I don't know what adjective to describe flying with, but it's definitely one of the more airborne creatures, so to speak. <laughs> um, as for Tyrion, um, a lot of this is based in the fact that I reject that Tyrion is a Targaryen. Um, and there's a <laughs> lot of reasons for that. I think it kind of hurts some of the characterizations that go along with Tyrion as well as his other siblings. Um, and I think uh, the whole concept of him being another secret, you know, specific special baby um, smacks of destiny. And it's not quite the interrogation of fantasy tropes. I think George is going for, I think anything with the secret identity, he's kind of pulling already through John. So to have that be performed, but in a kind of a least satisfying manner with Tyrion um, just doesn't uh, feel right to me. So that proposes the question of how does uh, Tyrion mount a dragon uh, at the end? Um, and basically, uh, George from the get-go has been building up Tyrion as someone who knows a lot about dragons. Um, from his uh, first chats with Jon uh, on the uh, King's Road up north, um, I think he's talking about dragons with him there. Um, he mentions uh, later on when he's with Griff and Young Griff um, that his uh, knowledge of dragons can be very helpful for them, and he kind of goes through that with them. So we know that Tyrion knows as much as humanly possible um, about dragons and dragon riding. But everything we're led to believe otherwise is that the Targaryens and the Valyrians had special bonds with their dragons um, based on blood or magic or what have you. Um, and I'm purporting, starting with the uh, given that Tyrion doesn't have any of that, um, he's going to need a little extra oomph or push to get from I have the knowledge to do this to I'm actually able to do this. And I kind of think that's where Bran comes along. Um, by being able to warg the dragon or warg 
sorry, skin change the dragon just enough. He might be able to quote unquote be the saddle that um, Tyrion um, requires to ride the dragon and kind of bring full circle this idea that, um, you know, full circle rather that uh, Tyrion did this kindness to Bran. Now Bran is able to repay this kindness in kind uh, to Tyrion. Uh, speaking of, because we can talk about how it makes sense for the plot, but what really matters is what does this mean for the characters? And as yes. we've talked about at length uh, in this episode, is that Bran was in a bad place to start immediately after his fall and waking from his dream. Um, you know, he had a lot of despair and kind of this moment where Tyrion does him this kindness, um, gives him this ability to be mobile again, uh, physically and socially, kind of brings him back from the edge. He's once again feels like he has purpose. He's a, he's a human again. And uh, what we have at this point in the story, uh, looking forward to the end game of, of A Song of Ice and Fire, is we already have a broken Tyrion who's gone down quite the dark path here, um, especially uh, after killing Tywin and Shay. Um, and he's, you know, basically I would almost say villainous to a point in what he's doing. I mean, he's doing it, mm-hmm. he's doing it surrounded by some awful people himself. So it's not like him killing nurse or whatever, uh, with the mushrooms is, you know, a terribly awful deed, but it's a <laughs> existentially awful deed because murder is wrong, but it's not like he's like killing innocents. <laughs> uh, we don't need to be- debate the morality of murder here, but, um, you kind of see that he's a broken person. And then, um, this could be something uh, we know that one of the things that made Tyrion not human, but he had the sense of wonder about dragons all through his youth and all through the story so far. And I would say a sense of wonder is a very humanizing um, emotion, something that we all experience. And oh, yeah. for Tyrion to be able to, because um, I don't think he's even really seen a dragon properly yet in a Dance with Dragons, maybe Viserion and Rhaegal from afar, but nothing like the scene we got in the show where Drogon flies overhead and he's able to have that kind of moment. And I think the show kind of, sh- you know, shortcutted that as a hand wave of like, this is kind of the moment that brings Tyrion back. But I think a more um, fulfilling response would be for that to happen when Tyrion actually rides a dragon and uh, to have that act as a way to bring Tyrion back from the brink once again kind of closes the circle that uh, was established when he performed that kindness for Bran. Um, So that's kind of the broad strokes of the theory. I realize it's not as supported by in-depth quotes and uh, references from the book, but it's kind of one of those things that makes sense to me. And I think more importantly to me actually has thematic and narrative payoff as opposed to something where it's just like the facts are not there enough for you to piece together this theory. You know, it's, it's interesting. I prefer theories that feel thematically relevant and relevant to the individual characters over the ones that have a mountain of text. And I think both are, both are great. Don't get me wrong, but I prefer those ones that feel right to like, I think this theory is, is fantastic. I mean, despite the fact that you and Emma are wrong about Tyrion not being a Targaryen and that's okay to be wrong about these things. Cause not everyone's going to be a hundred percent correct, but I, I love the idea of Martin saying, look, Tyrion does a kindness for a boy that he doesn't have to do in this chapter in a Game of Thrones brand for, and he does it on behalf of a friend that he's so far in the books he hasn't seen since he does it on behalf of Jon Snow. 
I can, I would love the idea of brand coming back around and repaying the favor, you know, and, and I do wonder like some of the, the mechanics, how it would play out precisely, but I would trust that Martin would do a great job of, of developing them. And, you know, I think it's really cool too, in that you see an increase in brand's abilities, especially in a dance of dragons, when he gets to the cave of the three eyed crow, and then he's able to see past events but then you see him in Theon's chapters talking through the Winterfolk Godswood. You see him in Theon's Winds of Winter chapters, skin changing the ravens and the crows or the ravens outside of Stannis's watchtower there. And they're all saying, tree, 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 Theon, Theon, Theon. So it seems to me, not to use this term too lightly, but that Bran is leveling up in terms of his ability. So he starts with being able to see the past. He's able to then talk seemingly say the word theon through the godswood now he's able to skin change ravens what's the next level right of this whole theory a dragon seems like it would be the ultimate level up for bran and the and to make bran the op in in terms of his own storyline not to use too many video game terms here i I apologize for those for those who are just zoning out at this point who don't play video games but i do strongly agree that this seems very thematically character and plot driven. Um, it has a lot of character, thematic and plot reasons and rationales behind it. And it feels right. And I think it's more important for a theory to feel right than to have a mountain of text backing it up and, and supporting it. I agree with that completely. I think you should generally go theme first because Martin, Martin can always jigger the logistics any way he wants to in terms of making how to make it happen but if it's something he wants to have happen that feels right for the story and characters it's going to happen so i agree we should leave with that and yeah i love this theory i'm just gonna just count the way all the ways i love it and go down all the ways i, I think it fits uh, wonderfully with, with what's happened so far some of which both of you guys have touched on i think it fits wonderfully with uh, the mythology surrounding the three heads of the dragon. Martin has also commented once, yes, three heads, but the third head will not necessarily be a Targaryen. I think, for me, this is this theory is the most likely outcome if Tyrion is not, in fact, a Targaryen. If Tyrion's not a Targaryen, I think this is definitely where Martin's going, is what I'm saying. Because this hmm. is a neat way of getting Tyrion to be the third head of the dragon without being a Targaryen. I love, as you were saying, the kind of moral echoing of it and the great lesson that, like, for all the darkness that Tyrion has gotten involved in and inflicted himself, for all that he's certain that the now that the world is meaningless and Penny shouldn't try to be optimistic and kind because that's just BS, let, that his this one kindness he's probably forgotten about is what comes back to elevate his life and reconnect him to the world. I think that's beautiful, and I think that fits Martin's themes wonderfully. And as Manu said, that is a way he would relate to his his favorite characters and kind of try to to try to bring them up. I love how it fits within Bran's story, as Jeff said, kind of gradually attaining powers and, and getting more and more involved with more and more powerful things. It answers the question of, if Blood Raven's so involved with all this magical stuff in the background, why doesn't he seem to have a plan for Danny and her dragons? You'd think he'd care about that, especially since he's yes. a Targaryen himself. This answers that question. Oh, he's going to get Bran involved with Bran's powers. And then, poof, that, that an- question is answered. It fits with, as you said, Jeff, Bran starting to bleed into other storylines. He's showing up in Theon's storyline. He showed up in Arya's Dream and Mercy, her release Winds of Winter chapters. I'll be yes. astonished if he's not involved in Sam's chapters, given that he's living on the Isle of Ravens now. <laughs> so this would be the way to get Bran involved in the Slaver's Bay arc and keep that stuff going. It would uh, fit 
the, as you say, the perfectly the image of the saddle. That's just a perfect echo that seems like it would fit Martin's sensibilities. Ramping up the saddle to a to, to dragon riding is as that's the much more epic way of doing it. And uh, I like that it would it would it would kind of connect everything that's going on with Makuro because he's seen Tyrion doing big things in the flames. It fits with Quentin because he let the dragons out, and then maybe that's what this is leading to. All the little narrative elements surrounding it, I think, uh, support this beautifully. But yes, most importantly, I think it feels really right for the characters. It feels right that Bran would would take this step, this kindness. It seems like a very Bran thing to do, and I love that it would kind of maybe not restore that part of Tyrion's heart, but at least remind him that it exists. I think that would could be has the potential to be a very emotional, uh, cathartic moment. So I love it across the board, sir. Love it to pieces. Oh wow. Thank you. Um, I did want to mention that you guys got me thinking now, too, and this is kind of not related to my theory per se, but um, we know Bran is strongly tied to the trees. A lot of people think the last chapter is going to be Bran as a tree in A Song of Ice and Fire in some fashion. Um, it's just kind of weird to think about the fact that, yeah, Bran is kind of just literally starting to branch out into everyone's story slowly. And you kind of think of him as being that unifying factor in all his branches that bring all these disparate <laughs> characters and, you know, plot threads. You know, he's going to be the one that kind of brings them all together. I think that's another point that kind of buoys that theory further. Yeah, yeah. Bran's the one who's got to tell everyone what's happening. He's the one who's got to let Danny and Tyrion know, hey, the stuff you're working on. John and Stannis are working on similar stuff over here. He's got to tell Sam. So the, all the craziest Euron stuff you're dealing with, that's really relevant to everything that's going on at the wall where you just left. Like, I think ultimately that is going to be one of Bran's jobs is to connect these things, connect all these storylines, not just for us, but also for the characters in universe to let people know they're all dealing with the same dilemma. And Slaver's Bay is the most geographically far-flung part of the story. It's the one that's farthest away from everything else. So Bran getting involved there would be a really great way to tie everything together. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I only have one other small note in that if Tyrion is a Targaryen, I'm still going to push this theory. Martin's saying that the third head of the dragon might not be a Targaryen might mean that Bran gets inside the head of the third dragon in order yes. to warg the or skin change the dragon and... Um, allow Tyrion to ride the dragon even if Tyrion is a, a Targaryen or if he's not. It, does, it doesn't matter either, either or. It could have a, a... Martin has this really cool way of sometimes having his symbolic language have a very literal meaning in the story as we talked about in the last Danny chapter if you, if you guys remember that from LML. So yeah, I, I, I agree with, with all the points and I, I love this theory, man. I remember when you were talking about it on Twitter, I just was like yeah, this it all fell into place for me. You, I, there's moments where I read a theory or I read an analysis, and I'm and I'm like, this guy or gal, they get it. And this is the, that was that moment for me where I was like, man, this this guy fucking gets it, and that's it's great. I, I love it. And I really really hope that's the direction that Martin takes the Song of Ice and Fire and takes. Bran and Tyrion's future storylines for sure. Yeah, well, thank you guys very much. Um, it's honestly, it was honestly a random tweet I made in response to someone or another, like, what do you think is going to happen in, you know, the final books or whatever? And I just kind of threw it out there. And I think Mashable or BuzzFeed kind of did one of their listicle things. And they, you know, grabbed that one of mine and said, I'm not crying, you're crying. Um, about the emotional aspect about it. And then um, ever since then, I think that's when it kind of landed on your radar, Jeff. And then now 
now as I keep going through the books and the shows and all the other supporting material, I kind of keep my eye out and have kind of fleshed the theory out from there. But it really was just kind of an offhand comment that kind of grew into something much larger, just because like you guys have said, it just makes sense on many different levels, both narrative and thematically. Beautifully said, sir. So yeah, so that's a fantastic theory. I think it's probably top five favorite theories in the past five years that I've I've read the books and have been involved in the fandom. But with every great and amazing theory, there comes a shitty, no good, bad theory that people should be thrown into a lake of fire for believing in. A good theory does not wash out the bad and a bad not the good or what have you. But um, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least bring this because the last two seasons of Game of Thrones um, have introduced this time paradox paradox aspect through the hold the door moment um, and kind of being vague about who the three-eyed raven is and who the night king is so there have been a lot of bad theories about who Bran Stark is and whether this opening up of time in the story means that Bran might have been Bran the Builder who raised the wall many years ago or any of the other important brands so first of all clearly Bran is every Bran ever is a bad and ugly theory. We completely reject it. But that said, in the description about old Nan, uh, Bran does mention that she had lived so long, Mother had told him once, that all the Brandon Starks had become one person in her head. Now, if we extrapolate from the absolute truth that old Nan is always right, I think we have insurmountable evidence that, in fact, Bran Stark is every Bran Stark ever, from Brandon the Shipwright, Brandon the Builder, uh, Brandon the Breaker, and everyone in between, including Ned's brother, uh, brother Brandon, who was burned alive in the Red Keep. So prove me wrong, gentlemen. This is where I have to admit that I kind of like that theory. I'll go. Oh, I'll no. I'll leave the room. It's probably not true, but of all of all the tinfoils, that's one of my favorites. Uh, it, it feels like it's too. it's a little too silly, but it does feel like the kind of insane 70s psychedelic thing Martin likes. He's written about kind of hive minds and like people in, you know, being one life and many lives in some of his stories before. And I there is that thing about like the version of Bran the Builder who told Duran how to build Storm's End was a small boy who, quote, grew up to be Bran the Builder. Part of me thinks, hmm, maybe that was our boy. It's probably <laughs> not true. It's probably not true, but lines like that from old, Na- old Nan uh, make me wish it is. Where it really breaks down for me is Ned's brother. Because, like, if, if Bran was really in his head, that just opens up a whole bunch of questions about why didn't Bran say anything or how much control does he have. And I, I feel like it's the kind of thing Martin might start writing and then go, you know what, this is, this is a little too complicated, <laughs> I might need to abandon this. So for all we know, he was on it at some point and is not now. Um, it's, it's almost certainly not the case, but of... Many tinfoil theories make me roll my eyes because I'm a, a frustrated and an unhappy person. But that's one uh, is, is one that I, I admit uh, uh, tickles my fancy a little bit. Again, I'm ashamed. Just as long as Bran is not the goddamn Night's King. Like, I, I would I would oh, take yeah. it that there's some sort of hive mind or there's a part of the Stark DNA that flows from Brandon the Builder onto Bran now, which is true, right? I mean, Bran, Brandon the Builder is the legendary founder of House Stark, right? I think I'm right about this. I, I, I really should read these books at some point, you know. <laughs> reading books? What? What? No way. I Who just, does that? 
Um, I can see it kind of, there could be a feasible way to have Bran be like the inspiration of like, oh, let's build a wall here. Or like, this is a good spot to set down Winterfell. Like I could maybe buy that if like presented properly as coming true. Um, but I just don't see him being all the brands, as you kind of say. I think there's some brands it makes sense for, and then others, like Ned's brother, Brandon, where the theory just completely falls apart and introduces more questions and kind of more what-the-fucks than anything of use. It might yeah. be Brand the... I would accept as a middle ground that he's just Brand the Builder is the other one he is. Not all the Brandons, maybe just Brand the Builder. I could see that appealing to Martin of having Brand go back and be the first one. But not not get the logistical nonsense of being all the Brandons. Yeah. But it, it in any case, it's probably not true. But it's 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 a fun one to toss around the old noodle. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's fun to think about and fun to consider that Bran shares some, I share some markers, some character markers with his his forebears, and um, and yeah. He's so disappointed in me, guys. You can just see the lines on Jeff's face. <laughs> I've let I've let podcast husband down disastrously, and I fear our marriage will never recover. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate everyone listening to our final episode of the Not a Cast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no, glad to no, see no, that one who killed it. <laughs> Went out on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, but seriously, thanks everyone for listening. We appreciate all your ears and all of your excellent feedback and comments. I mean, I, I love every Tuesday and Wednesday, and well, throughout the week getting all these tweets and emails from folks who are like, oh, we really enjoyed this, or here's some other feedback that we have on this chapter. We got a lot of great feedback about the Daenerys-Drogo relationship from folks from across the spectrum of, of different ideas, and we really appreciate all that. But we want to thank someone most of all, and that is Manu, for coming onto this podcast today. So thank you, Manu, man. We had so much of so much freaking fun doing this podcast episode with you guys, with you, and like where can we find you and your social media and your other podcasts and all your other outlets and stuff like that yeah yeah so uh i am at nuclear bomb it's basically nuclear bomb with a ma in front of it because that's my name <laughs> um follow me at your own uh, peril um i tweet about a lot of stuff that isn't game of thrones so be warned about that but i do tweet a lot about game of thrones and i am reading uh, a song of ice and fire again so i've been posting a lot about that as i've gone um i also have a podcast a scene of ice ice and fire um and that's at at scene ice fire um and basically everything i do for the fandom everything i write everything i record um it'll come from my twitter feed that's usually the best spot to find it um if you like cats you can find Find me at Manuclear Bomb on Instagram. Um, I really just post <laughs> pictures of my cat Gentry. So um, I want to thank you guys again for having me on. Like I said, I've looked up to you guys for the longest time. I'm very happy to call you guys friends, and now very happy to call myself a guest on your guys' podcast. And we'll have yeah. to have you guys on a scene of ice and fire. So uh, please uh, slide into the DMs and let me know what scenes you want to talk about. <laughs> Absolutely, it was our delight, sir. Thanks so much for coming on. We we had a great time. As for you out there in Radio Land, you can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and Podbeam, where pod, fine podcasts can be found. Uh, rate and review us on iTunes, of course. Uh, if you haven't checked out our Patreon before, you can find it at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on social media at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter, or give us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. Personally speaking, you can find me on Twitter at PoorQuentin. Or you can uh, find my blog at porkquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me on Twitter as at Brendan Beefish or on Reddit as Brendan Beefish. And my website is wars and politics of ice and fire.wordpress.com. 
And just as a quick reminder, our next Patreon-only podcast, all about old Vlantis, new Vlantis, and all things Vlantis is coming your way on July 26th. So check that out on patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOF, and it'll be available for all of our $5 above subscribers. So thank you for listening to us. Join us next time as the new Hand of the King investigates his predecessor's death in a Game of Thrones Eddard 5. Going to be a good chapter for sure. Yes, indeed, sir. Thanks one more time to our illustrious guest, and hope you guys enjoyed it. Talk to you next time. See ya.